I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yes, I would. Uh, this is Vicki, and Vicki has a real interesting encounter, and it came at an interesting time. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna comment on that. Uh, Vicki, you and I chatted about this, and this happened during uh, a presidential election cycle, and yeah. we pretty quickly determined that this was not one of the candidates. So we've got that's that's off the charts. That's yep. that's not there. Yep. Yeah. Yep, okay. That's true. Yep. <laughs> and um but real quick i'm just going to mention that um if you if you like the show you can click the like and subscribe button if you haven't done so already and also if uh, you want to support the show you can do so through patreon we've got a link in the description so i'm going to hand this off to you vicky and and start from the beginning fill us okay. in and tell us Tell us what happened. Okay, well, like you said, it happened, I believe it was 2004. Um, it was a presidential election year, and it just so happened that one of the candidates had uh, been ca campaigning in Green Bay, and they were going to go from Green Bay when they got done there and um, fly out of the central Wisconsin airport, which is south of uh, where I work in uh in Wisconsin here, and they had blocked off, restricted the use on the major route that runs from Green Bay to the airport, which is usually the route I would take to go home. And um, it was about four o'clock when I got done with work, and I decided I was, didn't feel like waiting in traffic for the candidate to pass by, and uh, I decided I was going to take the country roads back way home. And uh, if if it hadn't been for that candidate coming through, I probably never would have seen what I had seen. Um, so it was definitely a chance, uh, a chance in a million, I guess. But um, I was on my way uh, down one of these little back roads, and I came down a hill. And like I said, it was probably, I got done with work at four, so it was probably quarter to five, five o'clock in the evening, afternoon. And it was about end of August, middle of September time, um, end of summer, pretty much. And I was coming down the road, and then I came down a little bit of a hill that had a little bit of a left-hand turn, and it was wooded on both sides of the hill. But when you got down to the bottom of the hill, there was a driveway um, that went into a farmstead. Um, the farm... Uh, the farmhouse itself was maybe a hundred feet away from the road on the right side of the driveway. 
And in back of that house, there was where the barn was. And of course, the driveway kind of wound its way along in front of the uh, farmhouse and barn. And then along uh, around to the back of that, that was all woods along the back part of that property and then over to the left-hand side of it. Um, on the left-hand side of the driveway, there was a big hay field. And the hay that when, uh, at that time of the year, uh, it was probably about three to three and a half feet tall. Um, uh, the farmers that had a pretty good hay crop that year, they had already gotten about three uh, cuttings of hay off and probably their hay lofts and their, and their uh, silos were full of haylage enough to, you know, last their, you know, feeding their livestock through the year until the next, next uh, summer. Um, so they, a lot of farmers I noticed had been leaving their hay grow a little bit taller and I figured they must going to be leave it grow and then cut it off and use it for straw for bedding um, for that winter. And as was the case, that hay field that was on the left side of the driveway, that was fairly tall. And um, the size of the hay field was probably about, oh, probably 100 yards by 100 yards. And to the back side of that hay field was a stock pen with young stock beefers in it. And then behind that, again, there was woods. And to the left of that hay field, it was all woods for probably at least a mile or so down the road. Um, and I came down to the bottom of that hill and a movement in that field, hay field, kind of caught the corner of my eye and I looked and there was this big black thing plowing through that hay. And at first I thought, oh, it's a cow. But then when I looked at it, it was way too short for a cow for one thing there was no ear set there was no tail and what i could see of this thing kind of was sticking up maybe six inches eight inches or so maybe above the top of where that hay was and it it looked like it was very wide like maybe at least three and a half four feet wide and maybe about five or so feet long. There was no ear set on it. I didn't see any ears. I could see the top, middle top part of its head and back. Um, I didn't see any of the facial features. It was obscured by that hay. And I could see there was very little neck. Very, Like I said, the back was very broad and flat. Almost like if you had a table with muscles going through uh, through that hay. There was no tail, and you could see that it was something walking on four legs. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's not a bear, and it's not a dog. I used to belong to the kennel club, <laughs> local kennel club, and I've been around a lot of dogs, including large black like Newfies or Rottweilers or, you know, something big like that. And it was neither one of those. The hair on this thing was very thick and black. It looked very shiny. The sun, it, the, the uh, 
feature was going from the uh, west side of the hayfield over toward the east side where that um, wooded area was. And so the sun was kind of behind it and shining on it. And it looked very black and shiny. Um, but there was no tail. And it almost reminded me of if you've ever been to the zoo and seen uh, a gorilla, if when they're standing there and you look at their backs, they look very broad and flat. I mean, you can see the musculature and stuff on them. Um, but for for the most part, they look kind of flat. Um, and that's kind of what this reminded me of. And like I said, you couldn't, there was no tail. You could see muscles on the rear end part of it. Um, and you could see muscles moving underneath the hair. Um, and it seemed like it was, it reminded me of the, the gait of a cat when it's stalking something, how they get down low to the ground and then creep along. Um, and you see their shoulders and their hips kind of come up above the line of their spine. And it was moving at a pretty good clip through that, that way, through that grass, through that hay. And I just, I'm like, well, what the heck is that? You know, I just couldn't figure out what it was. I slowed down and was looking at it. And like I said, it was going at a pretty good clip through that hay. And I figured it was traveling, going to go into those woods over there. But I didn't sit, stick around to figure out what it was. Cause I was just kind of a, oh, well, I don't know what it is. It's not a bear or a dog, but, you know, I guess I just didn't just couldn't figure out what it was you know and I wanted to get home I was tired I'd worked 10 hours and you know so but yeah I I've been around a lot of dogs and as fast as that was going if it was a a, a canid of any kind a dog it would have been loping and you would have seen that little bit of a bounce that they do when they are in that uh that's a very energy efficient way for a for a canine to walk um, because they can travel a long distance and expend very little energy when they do it that way. But this was, was not, it, there was no bounce. You could just see the shoulders and the hip bones kind of rising up as it crept along through that. It was just the oddest thing. I just, I just can't, could never figure out what it was. And I kind of, stored it away as, gee, I wonder what it was. I, I never thought of it being a Bigfoot because I live in Wisconsin. I didn't figure they were here. And it wasn't walking on two legs. I thought Bigfoot walked on two legs. I never knew that they traveled on all fours at times. And I kind of just forgot about it. You know, I got home and had other things I had to do. Didn't really say anything to anybody. And didn't really think a whole bunch about it until, no, probably maybe 2014, 10 years later when I, I started, I found your channel on, on YouTube and I was listening to uh, one of the interviews that you did with a gal that had seen one of these creatures doing exactly that, creeping up behind a car um, and they kind of saw it in the rear view mirror and scared the heck out of them, I guess. And I kind of thought, it kind of jogged my memory of that. And I thought, 
I wonder if that's what that was, you know? And then I thought, well, nah, it probably wasn't, you know? And I figured if I asked anybody about it, they think I was a real nut job. So I didn't want to say anything. And then last Saturday when you were, were doing your question and answer session and uh, with Forrest and you were talking about these things, walking again on all fours, I thought, well, maybe that is what that was. So I figured I'd write in, bite the bullet, and I'd write in and uh, pose the question to you if that's maybe what I saw. So, Yeah, well, you know, I want to comment that a lot of people have, they see some sort of evidence. They'll see like what you've seen or they'll, or they'll hear something. And, you know, there's no, no official repository of information on the creatures of, you know, you, you, there's no National Geographic videos, sounds or no. anything like that. So you kind of, you are, you're left in the position where you're at. I can relate to that. I think virtually everybody we've had on the show practically can relate to that and so you, you're you, but you go through this what you did a process of elimination and you're yeah. left with and, and you know we talked last night and you said well some people said well gosh it must be a cow and yeah the description you gave me i we have cows here in oregon and none of them have a flat muscular back like that well you, you know, being that I'm from Wisconsin and we're America's dairy land, I, I think I probably would know a cow from. from You've other, seen cows before? I've seen, I've seen lots of cows in my <laughs> life. <laughs> right? Milk is new. Yeah. Pet is new. Pet is new. Right? They, yeah, yeah they, they have those shoulder blades and they're just a. Yeah. I have never seen a cow walking through a hayfield like that they don't do that they well and lunch through it yeah well and the thing is the grass was three to three and a half foot tall you know i mean cows are quite a bit taller than that you know i mean i they i usually come up they can look me in the eye you know so i mean if that was a cow it was awful it was a pygmy cow i guess it was right. a short cow. <laughs> with no ears, but no tail. With no ears and no tail. Uh, now yeah. they sometimes they are mean now and they do bob the tails off of cows because they don't want to get whipped in the face with the tails. But <laughs> right, that was not the case with this. <laughs> and like and I I've, said, usually the, they didn't. It, cows usually don't have well-defined rear end muscles either. So <laughs> no, and no. I could see that. <laughs> and the behavior so, I have. Like I said, I've never, you know, we have cows out here. I've never seen one no, uh, stalking or working its way, yeah, through a hay field. No. They, they, no. They're grazers. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. They'll lay down in the hay, you know, but, and it was too big to be a calf, you know. I mean, sure, they could say, well, maybe it was a calf, but it, it, it was too broad, for one thing, for a calf. I mean, it just. I've never seen anything that flat and broad going through, you know, grass like that. And I guess it it probably, I wouldn't have noticed it, but it was, the color of it was such a stark contrast to the green and the hay 
that it really in the and the like I said the sun was shining from behind it so it was really you know it was just a big pop of color you know black color it was just cold black almost you know and there's not too many things in Wisconsin that are black you know other than like I said maybe a newfie or a rottweiler or or a bear you know we don't have grizzly bears here of course we've just got the black bear but you know it wasn't a black bear either because the gate was again wrong with you know for that too you know I mean it's just because they usually swing their their hips kind of back and forth when they're walking you know they're back you know and it wasn't doing that and again there was no ear set you know so it just you know, it just really left me puzzled and scratching my head as to what it could be. And and like I said, I never thought about it being a Bigfoot because I always figured they just walked on two legs, you know. Right, yeah. No, they actually do. uh, We get reports of, uh, you know, they're both bipeds and quadrupeds. Mm -hmm. And, well, I guess one of the first ones that comes to mind is T.W.'s account where one was stalking a kid on a bicycle and it was on all fours well it it stopped it was on all fours when he stopped yeah okay (laughs) well it it was it it turned out the kid ran home and uh, the thing threw his bike up in the tree so um very scary yeah you know and i mean and, and like you said, they are in Wisconsin. I'm glad I didn't know that as a child because me and my girlfriends used to go camping just just us girls by ourselves out in the woods all the time. So, and we're, I guess we're lucky we didn't end up as a sack lunch. Very, <laughs> very <enough>. much so. <laughs> and <laughs> and kudos to you guys. I think that's great. Girls going out and camping by themselves, uh, you know, being <laughs> you know, uh, kind of gutsy, yeah. so to speak. So that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. And, yeah. and you had fun, you know. right? Yeah, we did. We always did. Yeah. You know, um, but we used to, you know, and we didn't go very far. We just walked down. Well, we lived in a very small little village and, you know, maybe half a mile down the, down the roads, you were in the woods already, you know, so we didn't, we didn't go very far, you know, but we were out there by ourselves and, uh, um, yeah, you know, mom and dad didn't know where this. we were. But. So you're driving down, you see this thing and mm-hmm. how long, how long did you have it in your, uh, did you have it in sight? Probably maybe, you know, five to 10 seconds, maybe, you know, cause I slowed down, but. I didn't, you know, stop and and just look at it or anything. Um, Of course, when I first saw it and thought, oh, well, maybe it's a cow, because that field was not fenced in. And I thought, oh, my God, somebody's cow is loose, you know. Um, And usually if you see that, you usually stop and knock on their door and say, hey, when your livestock or whatever is loose, you know, on the road. So that's kind of why kind of looked and pulled my foot off the accelerator. And then again, when I realized it was not a cow, I kind of just kind of drifted along a little bit until 
I got to about where the where the wood started, and then I just you know left. But yeah, so for maybe five ten seconds at the most. Yeah. Have yeah. you um, since then? Have you had any or heard any reports of Bigfoot in uh, Wisconsin? Because we get reports. Uh, there was. Um, I'm not sure exactly what year this was, but up north of here, up near in uh, Langlade County, um, it's kind of north east of here, um, there was a lady that supposedly saw one crossing a highway up there, um, went running from one side of the road and jumping down into the ditch and then going into the woods. That was uh, like I said, I can't remember when it was. It was a few years back anyway. Um, and then I think supposedly somebody also, um, there's always reports of them down in the Kettle Moraine um, part of the state, which is in the southern part of the state, um, okay. Kettle Moraine State Forest. Um, as far as individual sightings, I don't know, but. I've heard that they're down there too. You know, people have seen them. Um, okay. And I think there's a researcher down there too that, you know, that's where he, you know, kind of. Well, we get reports from Minnesota and Michigan, <laughs> Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. Yep. yep. Uh, so that's, those are all your neighboring states. Yep. And certainly the upper yep. peninsula of Michigan, yep. uh, quite a mm -hmm. bit. Well, that was that where that picture that uh, Will had in one of his books, wasn't it? Uh, where it was running away from the camera. Wasn't that taken up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? Will? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. That's Upper, upper Michigan. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, people have, you know, heard of reports from up there and on the lower part of Michigan too, you know, in the, in the mitten part of it too. So I don't know. Yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> There's I guess a lot just... of wood. well, like I said, if, if they are here, quite possibly are, there's a lot of woods that they could use to, as cover to go from place to place. There's a lot of deer here. We have a very large population of deer. So there's lots for them to eat, um, you know. Well, uh, now one of the questions I have is, yeah, talking about that would be, not, and I don't want an exact location, but was this um, more of a northern part of Wisconsin, central or southern? Central, central. Mm -hmm. Central Wisconsin, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'm looking on the map and I see a lot of water, a lot of farms, yep. and a yep. lot of... Uh, wooded areas for yeah. concealment. Yep. 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 Yeah. Um, this area here around here was heavily logged um, back in the, you know, first part of the ninth, 18th century, you know, 1900s. They had a lot of logging camps and stuff. My grandpa used to work in them, actually. So, yeah. A lot of woods around here. A lot of paper mills. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, mm -hmm. and I'm just curious if you'd heard of any, uh, a lot of times when you have 
uh, they they may not call it Bigfoot, but sometimes you'll have lore that goes back to you know 1900s, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not you know, heard of any. I've not okay. heard of any, but I do know that uh, the Native Americans believe that they are here. So, and you know, I'm not going to say that they're wrong because they've been around here a lot longer than the the white people have so um, they have and they yeah. are actually a living encyclopedia <laughs> exactly. of these creatures so, yep yep so yeah it's just uh <laughs> it's like i said it was a little you know when when i when i realized that, that it might be one of those things it was a, li- a little disconcerting you know, if it I, if I had actually stopped and waited to it got to those trees, and maybe if it st- had stood up, it would have went from a what the hell to a oh crap. <laughs> yes. I think I would have been a little little traumatized. This this way, at least at least I I I had a little bit of a uh what is it a Goldilocks sighting where uh, you know uh, if it was one you of did. those. You know, I walked away without trauma. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, kind of like Will's first encounter. Well, that was a Goldilocks encounter, right? Oh, you yeah. were too close to yeah. him or anything? No, like no, that. the second one was. <laughs> I, I was being facetious. <laughs> yeah. No, no, the first one was an oh crap moment. <laughs> yeah, that would have that, that definitely would have been an underwear changing moment for me. Too. It was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I can remember um, listening to your show because I usually listen, try to listen every week. Um, but you were talking to, I believe it was Don Gummo from out in Maine, and he was talking about how they mimic sound of owls. Right. And. I was, I, one time I was camping, oh, and this was after I saw this thing in the field. If I would have known that was what it was, I wouldn't have went camping. But uh, I was camping down in the, oh, probably about uh, 100 miles south of where I am here in central Wisconsin. And the state park, that first night I was there, there was so many owl sounds around my tent and one sounded like it was right over the top of my tent and and ever since I've listened to that that show with him and talking about those owls that really kind of gave me the chills <laughs> it was like well maybe it wasn't an owl maybe it was one of those a bunch of one of a bunch of these things because it was loud. <laughs> I've never heard an owl that loud. And well, there was more than one. <laughs> you <yeah>. know. <laughs> it could, you never know. Um, yeah. We've, uh, Will and I have heard stories about people being out in the woods at nighttime, two in the morning, and hearing owls, right, Will? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it was... And I'm glad I had my dog with me, and he kind of even growled. You know, he was like, <laughs> had his head up, and he was looking and growling. And uh, but he was in no no hurry to leave the tent either. He was. <laughs> um, you never know. You yeah. Never know. You know. You know. It makes you wonder. 
what what it is about them that dogs understand it, you know, right well, away. Dogs, that dogs are a good natural. Yeah, they're just a good natural alarm system and and watch keeper yeah. anyway. So. Yeah. Well, Vicki, I want to say thank you so much. I really appreciated you making the time to come on the show today and mm-hmm. sharing this encounter. Absolutely. Uh, well, well yeah, thank you so much for having me on and uh, um, kind of, like I said, giving me something else to think about. And I probably will never go camping again. <laughs> 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 Unless I am in a in a uh, RV. <laughs> Good point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too old. I I don't run very fast anymore, so I'd be a good one to have the T-shirt with the bait on it. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I I will keep listening for your weekly shows. I really enjoy them. Thank you, Vicki. Absolutely. Really, Thanks, Vicki. We really appreciate and it. All right. You have a real good weekend. Yes, you as well. Thank you. We're back with guest number two. Tom, would you like to make the introductions? Yeah, absolutely. This is John, and John's a friend of mine. I've known him for, gosh, over 30 years, and uh, he's he's the guy that uh, we first went out. Um, well, I had to say is this was uh, close to four and a half years ago, I found some, actually I found a torn up tree stump. I showed you a picture of it. And you said, go back and look at the ground. And I was like, now there's an obvious idea. We did that. And within 60 seconds, I found a 14 inch footprint. John, what did you see? Because I, I, I called you over, I said, hey, there's an 85% chance I know what this is, but I need a second opinion. Uh, it was close to the 17 inches. It was down in the root portion of the stump, and it was, uh, I looked at it as a piece of art. It had a beautiful fan tail heel on it. It was the right foot, and you could see where it had leaned over, gripped the ground with its toes, and pulled itself up. It was uh, really, really interesting from the standpoint of where it was at and where we were at 5,000 feet. Yeah. And within moments, you had gone out and found some other tracks. I did. I was able to backtrack over probably about 10 feet, and I found a left footprint. Uh, it wasn't as distinct as the right footprint simply because it wasn't in the mud, but definitely you could see the left uh, footprint um, back behind probably 10 feet over on the flat. Yeah. And so we spent a little bit of time there and finally we hiked back. And this is kind of, is an interesting area. It's the bottom of a caldera, but it's a caldera that's filled with old growth, dug fir and pines and hemlocks. And as I recall, when we got back to the truck, the words out of your mouth was, I cannot wait to get back here and do this again. Is that how you remember it? No, uh, I said that I wouldn't go back again. It was uh, where we were at was down a long road to a, 
unmarked trailhead down out into the woods. And um, after you took off to see what was going on, I, I immediately noticed it was totally quiet. There was no critters, no birds, no sounds uh, whatsoever. And everything looked the same every direction you looked. And one of the things that I immediately understood was I'm downhill. And if anything came out, it would be a long run uphill. And it definitely it gave you the sense that it was a place that you really didn't want to be down in there too long, uh, given what we had just found. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember we got back to the truck, and I've mentioned this on, on the show a couple of times, but we got back, and and your words were, I don't mean to be hard, but don't ask. I'm not coming back. Do you remember that? Uh, definitely. Um, it, it was just simply, it was simply an understanding that you're a little too far over the edge, a little too far down into an area that if you did encounter anything, there's basically uh, nowhere to run to. Right. But the good news is, if anything had happened, uh, considering the remoteness of the area, I don't think more than a decade would go by before finally somebody would discover where the truck is and where, you know, maybe some remains are. So that's that's the the upside of all this. <laughs> well, that's uh, absolutely that's absolutely true. In reality, it's it's very true. It's simply because it was so late in the year, just before the snow um, started to uh, fall, uh, that. If something would have happened, uh, there would have been nobody down in there for probably the next spring. I mean, it was isolated enough. It would be the next spring. And at that juncture, it would have been very difficult to figure out what had transpired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so, Will, I have to, you know, it, 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 I get a chuckle out of it because I showed you that tree stump. And I showed it to Dalton independently of each other. You guys both came to the same conclusion that you could see were like fingernails, giant fingernails had scraped the bark off of that. And do you remember what you said? Go back, look for evidence. Go back and look at the ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I remember at the time thinking, what a brilliant idea. <laughs> Um, so about a month and a half after that, cause I, I tested John a couple of times. I'm like, come on, let's go back there. And he's like, no, we're not. Or you go ahead. And, and I said, well, we're going to go to another area about 35 miles, 30, 35 miles from there. And we're going to go there because I know they're not there. We're going to a place where they're not. And it turns out they were. That's where we found another set of tracks, and we went up there later on the next year, mid-August, and we're driving along the road, and I saw a huge pile of scat. To this day, I'm still not 100% sure what the scat was. You know, was it black bear? Was it, you know, fair-sized, large black bear, or maybe a small Sasquatch? I still don't know, but... Um, we were going to, you know, I took some pictures of it and we used a uh, paper plate for scale. John's thrown into the back of the truck. And what happened then, John? Well, we used the paper 
plate and everything, you said throw it in the back of the truck. I, I, I stepped back to the back of the truck, nonchalantly threw the paper uh, plate into the truck and immediately had a diagonal, basically right straight from where I was, probably 50, 60 feet away, something growled at me. And it was a very interesting growl because I still remember in my mind, it was like one of those cartoons where you see that, you know, when something speaks or something, and it was a very projected growl. And I immediately, it was just like, wham, it was directed at me and it was personal at me. And it was basically telling me, leave. Um, it was a very interesting experience because simply something was watching us because there's no other explanation because when I stepped to the back of the truck, threw the paper uh, plate into the back of the truck, it was immediate. It was immediate. It was like it didn't want us to be looking at what we were looking at, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. And uh, now I had heard, uh, I believe I heard the growl as well, but the problem is I was standing in front of the truck with the engine running and the growl just kind of, this is a separate growl. This was just before you heard yours a uh, minute or two prior to that. And it, it mingled in with the sound of the engine. So in my mind, I was thinking, you know, there's an airplane. I looked up there, there's no plane. But um, it was pretty, pretty interesting. And you were emphatic after you heard the growl that we get in the truck and go. Yes, and it was it was partially because I, believe it or not, I understand, it was asking us to leave. And so in my world, I said, well, you're asking me to leave, we're going to leave. And the other thing was, it was so close. It was basically like looking across the street at another house. Uh, it was so close. It was so projected. And it was just very emphatic. And I put two and two together, whatever the scat where we were looking at, it didn't like that. And the best thing to do was just simply say, okay, we love you, brother, but we're going to leave. And we left, which was really the best thing we could have done. Yeah, it was. It was. So, and that kind of led up to um, oh, about two weeks later, I went up with a couple of guys, and that's when we, I had my first sighting. I, I mean, I call it a sighting. It was very, very quick. Um, but I call it a sighting because my eyeballs saw it. So, uh, it was just like zipping in and out of a tree really, really fast. Um, and Will, this is the area that you and the, the, the gang came up, came up in September. Oh, okay. And this is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we ran into some further stuff up there and we've talked about that quite a bit where we actually at one point, uh, got surrounded by these things, and then we're kind of drawn into an ambush with the owls and, uh, you know, the 1,500-pound owls up there. So um, what are your thoughts, Will, based on your experience with these creatures about the activity and the that kind of an area as far as being a... Uh, an, active area i mean well we know it's an active area um you know there's 15 individuals up there yeah 
and and it's a pretty small, you know, relatively speaking, it's kind of a concentrated area where there where these individuals are. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think it's an area that's uh, worth you know taking you know giving it some future consideration and and looking at. Um. And I guess the other thing I wanted to do was ask or talk about the possibility of, you know, we have 15 individuals up there. That really sounds like it could be, I don't know, maybe two or three family groups, you know, combined together or working in cooperation, something like that. It could be a single group. I mean, four to you six. Think so. is, One four, large group. Yeah, four to six is a rule of thumb, but um, you know, with a lot more juveniles these days, these groups could be larger. Well, that's interesting because I did find um, Kurt and I went up there. Uh, gosh, a few months before you and I were up there, and did find a juvenile track uh, in the dirt. So. That kind of makes sense. So one large family, and you never know exactly where they're at, <laughs> which That's is a little unnerving. Very true. You know, one of the things that I found, uh, I, I hadn't even given it much consideration, but we were up there with the team, and you remember we were in that field, where the brush piles or the burn piles were. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys mentioned, you know, it's awfully quiet here. And this is just before twilight, before it's starting to get dark. Yeah, right. And you'd made a comment. Yeah, typically that time of night is when everything is making a ruckus. You know, the squirrels, the chipmunks, and birds and everything are making a racket as they're getting ready to settle in for the night. And that's exactly right. Everywhere else I've been, that's been the case. But here it was dead silent. Well, and the juvenile track wasn't that old, so I'm guessing they were nearby. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting because when we were, when we were examining that juvenile track, Kurt and I, we could hear these scream howls, the best way to describe it, off to my left, and then about 60 degrees to my light, to my right, about 45 seconds, minute, maybe a minute and a half later, you heard another one scream and howl. And I looked at Kurt and said, did you hear that? He's like, yeah. <laughs> So that's uh, that's when we got the truck and uh, you know decided to get out of there. Um, so the other question I have is this is just I guess sort of an, a kind of an informal Q and A, but you have mentioned many times in the past about where the the number of juvenile sightings have gone up where now it's at the point 60% of all Bigfoot sightings are juveniles. Well, I'm not sure about the percentage, but we're seeing a lot more. 
much yeah. much more than and in the I past. think it right and that was the one that we saw up there was about six and a half foot tall and all black hair which you know those two you know really say that that was definitely a juvenile so <clears throat> well and you know that area is the area that is had a recent burn nearby mm -hmm. and when we drove up there there's a lot of brand new foliage up there so that brings up a whole new um kind of a 12-year cycle whole new um the, the this is just something that i picked up from one of the uh, forest service biologists he said that it brings up a whole new eco cycle of smaller critters snowshoe hares uh owls real owls by the way and foxes and that sort of thing and then after about 12 15 years it, you know you start to get the bigger trees and you get get a whole new uh, uh eco cycle in there so that's probably going to be you know if it's uh, heavily act active now it's probably going to be even more so in the future yeah that group doesn't seem to be going anywhere at the moment no no they're pretty stationary and there's you know, we've looked at John Green's books, and that area has some historic precedents, so that's that's kind of interesting as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, now one of the questions that I had was there were some key pieces of evidence that we found there that you said you had also seen in. Northern California. Can you comment on that a little bit? Are you talking about the trees? Yeah, the trees. Yeah, uh, the trees and and the uh, juvenile footprint. Because I believe you found one of those as well. Right. Well, you know, the trees, that's a kind of a telltale marking, you know, for territorial markings. Uh, the big difference is the type of trees in that area and the way they were destroyed i mean it was extremely violent looking to me where in other other places both in california and washington you know didn't see that level of destruction so uh, typically they're either twisted or just snapped over the trees up in that area were basically destroyed yeah. destroyed and thrown all over the ground broken broken in multiple and places and limbs torn off and yeah and it looked like it had been fresh, like yeah, it wasn't possibly old. even that day or day before. Yeah, it was not old. And I remember standing there, and you're explaining that to everybody that this is uh, looks like it's a very violent. You'd never seen this sort of thing before, and I thought, nice. We're all standing around in the middle <laughs> of nowhere, and we got some angry ones. <laughs> what are they going to take out their vengeance on? Yeah, besides trees. <laughs> um, yeah, besides trees. What, what else could be there? Maybe five guys. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, that was kind of interesting. And, you know, I found some more of those torn up like that. Uh, a couple hours after you, well, no, less than an hour, less than an hour after you guys uh, took off, headed back down to California, I drove up to the opposite ridge, and it was a virtually identical situation 
where it looked like a brush hog had come through and torn it, but it was very specific. It only touched the cedar trees. Uh, right next to it, three feet away, you'd have a, a tiny little sapling, uh, dug fir saplings, and they were they were untouched. So we have yet to determine if there's significance to tearing up cedars and leaving the dug firs alone. Right. So that was uh, that was kind of an interesting whole situation. Um, and now, John, do you recall the? This is another very interesting occurrence. This was down at that, and for lack of a better word, we'll just call it a pond next to the meadow. We went there in February, and there was still a bit of snow on the ground. It was cold. It was dark about 4:30 in the afternoon. February, so it's winter time. Sun's going down, and we went. We we spent about ten minutes checking out the pond because that had been interesting in the past. What did we find walking back from the pond that we didn't see before we got there? Oh, um, yes, uh, you'd gone down to the pond, and I'd stayed back about fifty feet. Walking down the trail initially, we saw nothing, but when we came back. Something had outflanked us and left a great big clod of dirt and moss right in the middle of the trail. And right off to the right there, there was a set of fairly large footprints. Um, What had occurred, something had gone behind us. And what I found fascinating was I was 50 feet away, just over a little bit of a berm, heard nothing. And when I went in there, I had been very careful to look for any sign of anything at all, didn't see anything at all. I mean, but this was so obvious when we came back, I was just shocked. I was stunned because you could literally see something had crossed behind us and it was a very large something because you could see the footprints um, pressed down into the dirt, the moss had crossed directly behind us. Yeah, exactly. And the direction that it traveled was towards uh, a small structure and uh, kind of a forest service structure. We went to there and walked over there and heard a a vocalization, and that's when we really decided to leave. So, um, listen, this was – yeah, go ahead. There was definitely something there. And having been there several times, um, there was times we had been there that it very definitely had a foreboding about it. I mean, just absolutely creepy. And then there was sometimes we've been there when there was nothing at all. And this is a time that it was somewhere in between that there was a physical sign that something was right there behind us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, here's the thing: the the it was less than I don't know what I'd say it's about 50 yards from the edge of that pond to where the footprints were, and how this thing had managed to come in behind us without us seeing or hearing it, and it's almost as if it left that huge footprint intentionally for us to see. I mean, it was just very obvious. It didn't have to do that. It could have avoided doing that. So 
don't know what the, what the story is with that, but that was that was uh, that was an eye opener. Uh, it really was an eye opener because it was it, it showed a total lack of fear of us whatsoever, and it it had if it wanted it avoided us, it could have avoided us because it was it, it was not that far. It was just like again walking across the street directly behind us. It seemed to have no fear of us. It seemed to know exactly what we were doing. It seemed to be totally aware of us. And it didn't seem to have any reason to hide its presence whatsoever. I mean, here you are. You could see where it kicked up stuff. You could see the footprints. You could see everything. And it was like it it didn't really care. Um, In one sort of the way, you're true. It, It let us know that it was there when it could have just simply avoided us by going in another direction or getting away from us, totally avoiding us. But this thing did not avoid us. Yeah, that's right. No, it didn't. And I think that's the, the takeaway from this is it, it intentionally, in a sense, was kind of interacting with us or, or, you know, messaging us, hey, I was here. And we never, ever get a benevolent feeling when they're interacting with us, it's always quite the opposite. Very, uh, a little bit on the sinister side, a little bit malevolent. So, well, listen, John, thank, thanks a bunch, man. I appreciate it, buddy. And um, I think we're going to wrap it up at this point. Yeah, we definitely. Thank you for having me. We definitely appreciate it. All right, folks, we'll stay tuned for the next segment. We'll be right back after the break. In Bigfoot history, Brown's Gulch, north of Butte, Montana, May 17, 1964. Dr. Joseph Feathers wrote that a Boy Scout had been awakened by something moving in front of the tent where he was sleeping, and got up. He encountered a man covered with brown hair with silver tips and with a heavy beard. The boy screamed, waking the camp. Tracks 20 inches by 7 inches with a 7-foot stride were found the next day. Two of Dr. Feathers' students, Gary Simmons, and Sid Richardson saw the tracks. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Uh, Forrest is out chasing a couple of horses that decided to get out, so she'll be joining us sometime later. We're not sure when, but we have Brian Young with us today. Brian... Tell everybody about your podcast and where they can find it. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for having me on. Um, My podcast is called Transatlantic History Ramblings. It's available anywhere you can find podcasts. uh, Spotify, Google, Apple, Radio Public, you know, whichever ones. None of them are paying me, so I don't care if I miss a few. But Anchor. And we deal with all things in history of any kind, whether it be the strange, the weird, the wild, the paranormal, the serious history, the um, fun history. And we do a general conversation. We don't do the typical boring history question and answer. Uh, Me and my lovely co-host Lauren Davies from Swansea, UK in Wales, 
have a wide variety of guests on and just have a fun, nice conversation. And William was was kind enough to be on um, a very recent episode, which you should all download. It's phenomenal. It is incredible. He is amazing, as you all know, because you're listening here. And uh, we had a lot of fun talking about the foots. <laughs> we sure did. And, and that's why I, I thought to myself, you know, Brian, you got to come on our show because you were just a heck of a lot of fun to talk to. And, um, Tom, you haven't got to listen to that episode, but, uh, of course, he hears me all the time. <laughs> yeah, Tom, we, we find out some important facts about, like, why Bigfoot doesn't wear pants. And, right. And uh, his ding-ding, things like that. <laughs> Those are those are so questions. Brian, those are questions Thomas yeah, yeah. had in his mind all this time. <laughs> I, I'm They're sure most people have burning questions. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so Brian, you do this is interesting. You do history. I'm, I love history, and um, you you focus on the weird and the kind of a little bit off center history. Uh, so I'm going to ask an obvious question that I think is probably on the minds of a, a lot of people in the audience. And that is, what about our topic, uh, Bigfoot, and how have you got any historic stories or accounts uh, here in North America, specifically the United States, but not exclusively, you know, Canada as well, on, you know, settlers having encounters with these things and Native Americans, uh, anything like that? But my fascination and interest in, I call them the Bigfoots, um, because like I said, there's more than one, so it's plural, and I don't think big feet sounds good, but it's the Foots. I'm a child of the 70s, so I grew up in search of in the Bigfoot crazes and then the legend of Boggy Creek and all these documentaries and movies, and I got really into the Bigfoots to the point where I have never been fishing, I've never been camping. I've never been hiking in my life. And I use the foots as my excuse for that. That I don't want to see a foots. I think, I think it's a good excuse. <laughs> yeah. And I think everyone should listen to me. National parks will hate me for that. But don't you don't want to see the foots. I also live uh, on the U.S.-Canadian border in New York. In Native American territory. So there's all kinds of tribes and native settlers around this area. I mean, I'm actually from a city called Tonawanda. So, I mean, that shows you how close we are to native territory. And, you know, there's always been these legends, especially in native communities, about Bigfoots. And it was far less pop culture and funny hearing it from that side than, you know, what we got in... The mainstream with you know Andre the Giant as Bigfoot and the Six Billion Dollar Man, or some of the really hokey documentaries. So I've always had this fascination with the Foots, and I've always searched for documentaries and shows and podcasts. And it was this show that I stumbled upon because it, it's the most authentic and no BS and honest. And uh, plus, as I said on the show, and everybody listening can agree to this, William sounds like he should be doing smooth jazz nighttime DJ work. <laughs> I mean, 
can't you just picture him saying, yeah, that was Pat Metheny, and we're going to bring you back some Grover Washington Jr. next. I mean, he's just perfect for this. As far as guests go, you've never had anybody talk about Sasquatch or Bigfoot, per se, in a historical context. We have had one of our paranormal episodes, we were doing different cryptids and um, some of the more silly ones, like Dogman and things like that. And I've had experts say that all these things are garbage, they're crap, except they can't rule out the foots because there's something scientifically that makes sense about it even though we've never found it. So I've always had this fascination with it. As, as a hard historian, I don't like to debunk and poo-poo the foots. Well, you know, I think it's okay to take a good hard look at things that are purported to be evidence. I mean, some of it's very self-explanatory. We get some really good... I mean, I have... I can't even begin to tell you how many pictures of footprints I've got. But And, and I was telling Tom before we started... One of the things that periodically, I mean, there are things that float around, you know, the quote-unquote Bigfoot community, and it's by a lot of people who are either new or they keep trying to resurrect things that were nonsense. And one of them I was looking at this morning that uh, gives me a little bit of heartburn once in a while is this so-called Skookum cast. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, And some background on that, I mean... I worked that area, that region, for a dozen years. There was one group of Sasquatches. They moved throughout that region on an annual basis. They're in an area for about, you know, two weeks or so, and they keep moving. They move in a clockwise fashion around that region. So there was a guy by the name of Ray Crow, and he had a bookstore, used bookstore in Portland, and he was a little bit of a crackpot. But, uh, you know, I'm sure he meant well, but a little on the goofy side and for a while he would go out with my field team and this place called Skookum Meadows um, and it's an it's a big open area in in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest and there's a herd of elk that live there that hang around that area pretty frequently in fact whenever I wanted to show somebody elk that was one of the places I would go because you'd always see them there uh, so supposedly you know, in 2000, September of 2000, they find this impression in mud. Well, first of all, and I'm not going to say it at this time how I know this, but I know Sasquatches don't sleep on the ground in mud. I can tell you that for a fact. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at a picture. Yeah, well, sure. There, there is a picture of, uh, of Meldrum. He's, you know, standing next to this thing, and he's identified certain features. Well, there's three, three areas that are circled that are marked butt. I don't know how many butts a Sasquatch has, but I doubt it has three, <laughs> unless it's just bouncing around in the mud on its you know, backside. Uh, three heel prints and supposedly an elbow or an arm or something. Suspiciously, there are no full footprints, since it was so muddy in this spot, or hand or finger markings, which I don't know about you guys, but... You know, if I'm going to get down on the ground, I'm going to use my feet and hands to do this. I'm not just going to fall down. So the first thing I said when I looked at it, it's kind of the Rorschach test of Bigfoot evidence. <laughs> and for anybody who has any psychology background, or if they're familiar with Rorschach tests, or the, you know, the ink blots. And what those were used for was to test uh, uh, or to evaluate 
any form of mental illness. And folks, you're not supposed to see, if you have a healthy mind, you're not supposed to see anything in the ink blots. <laughs> so the people that are seeing all this stuff in this impression, um, I have to question a bit. Maybe they need an examination. I don't know, but, uh, it, it's an, it's an elk that laid down in the mud there. So wait a second. Uh, you got to rewind for a second. You're not supposed to see anything in the Lots. Right, that's what the professor in my, my site courses at WSU, WSU talked about. They said when they came on that subject, they said a healthy mind isn't supposed to see any images in those uh, tests. Oh, well, that's not a good sign for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, what are your thoughts? I've seen lots of things in them. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm the same way. And, <laughs> um, and you know, maybe you could expand that a little bit and say you shouldn't be seeing blobs in the trees in your photographs where you you see these what we call blob squatches maybe that maybe there's a correlation there well and you know and i'm i tell people you know yes i know the creatures are real i've seen them that's how i know that but i'm still a skeptic and i'm going to question everything i see uh even really good information good prints things like that you know, I want to know information about the line of prints. How many were there? When people says, oh, I found one or two of these really, really good, crisp tracks. There should be hundreds, even thousands in a line of tracks. Uh, so I have to question yeah. these things. I always wondered, is like the Bigfoot just like coming out of a tree, putting two feet down and going, I'm really screwed with people, and then going back <laughs> up in the tree? Like, Shouldn't there be like a whole like series of tracks? There should be. In fact, if we go back to the 1960s in the Bluff Creek area, and Rene DeHinden told me this once, he said, and it's in Green's books, they got called by the, I don't know if it was a road building crew, I think it was a road building crew at that time, uh, of, a, of a fresh track find. And there were numerous track finds, and they would call John Green or Rene DeHinden when they'd find these. Well, the road crews weren't going to stop working just because they found these tracks. And it takes, you know, however long it took to get from British Columbia to Northern California. It's, it's a little bit of a drive. So they're going to continue working. So Renee said, you know, the crews, they'd found these tracks on the new roads. And he said they showed them when they arrived where the tracks went to. And one particular day, Renee said he counted. Now, this is, these are the tracks that weren't destroyed. They were off the road. There were thousands of tracks on the road, apparently. The ones that were off the road from where they were working, he counted 997 tracks. Roger Patterson in southern Washington went to a ranch. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. It was later. But um, he found, he counted over 1,000 tracks in a line on this ranch. When they found the Bossberg tracks, the Cripplefoot tracks, in 1970 in eastern Washington, they counted 1,000 tracks. So that was typical. So when you find one or two or three tracks, um, and I can tell you from my own, you know, counting tracks, we went to a spot, in fact, we were in Northern California, my brother-in-law and I were in, uh, about 15 years ago, and we, I wanted to find some good tracks, I can't remember what the project was, but we didn't really see anything there. Lots of bear, but not much Sasquatch sign at that time. So we were talking about it one evening, and he says, what do Sasquatch tracks look like? <laughs> you know, because he's a high school teacher, and so I told him, I explained to him, and he says, you know, I think I saw some of those. And I said, where? And he says, well, where the bike trail is, you know, along the Carbon River, right near our home. 
So we drive 700 miles, you know, to find tracks, and they're right there in our backyard. So when we get back, we drove over to the spot, and sure enough, there were 14-inch tracks in mud. And they kind of meandered around. It was in a weird spot. It was really brushy there. But the open area, I counted more than 100 prints in that open area. So there should always be a lot of tracks in a line if they're legitimate. Yeah, and that, you know, i got to ask a question. And this is how I can always tell the BS people. That's what I've, I said on my show with you, that I love you because, not only because of the voice, but because your credibility, you won't associate when you find out something's a hoax, you'll call them out. That's right. Every time you see these people that you know are full of it that say, I found these three tracks, wouldn't you think that these things are traveling together, or do they, like, travel single file, like sand people in Star Wars, to hide their numbers? You know, I guess it depends on what they're doing. If you find a line of uh, an individual tracks, you know, maybe they're hunting, and, and when they feed, they are spread out a bit. So I, I would guess that when they're in a spot like that, um, and, and you don't know how far away the other individuals are. I mean, they're not probably going to travel in a group, because if they're hunting... The prey animals are more likely to see a group than they would be an individual moving. But now, on the other hand, you do find lines of tracks where there are multiple individuals. Yeah, the migrators. Sure. Let me ask a question, Will. What about the, uh, are there instances where you could have one or two tracks? And it's not because... You know, like, for example, if it's in the mud or the sand, there should be more, you know, because if there's just one or two, it's like, hey, how did that happen? But what about if the ground isn't conducive? You know, the thing's walking across some very rough or spongy terrain or mm-hmm. something that, you know, won't won't imprint. And then it hits that one spot where it will make an imprint and it just keeps going. Um, could that be one instance one scenario it, where you it might could be and i think what happens in those cases if it's just an average person out there looking you know they're not going to go the extra mile to say go a few hundred yards in that direction that the track was oriented in to see if the line picks up in softer material um, you know because people don't consider that it's like holy cow look what i found you know and they might take a picture and off they go um, but i question the people who are you know the so so-called you know bigfoot researchers uh if they find something like that well how come you didn't spend the extra time looking further you know both forward the direction the track is pointed it's oriented in or where it came from you can go back and forth and the same is true with counting prints if you're going to follow those lines in either direction and you should go both directions and count the numbers you know that's actually a really good point because you you mentioned that to me time and again, you know, back and uh, back in the early days when I started up with this podcast. And so when I would find a track, I would learn to look both directions. And a lot of people, it's it's it seems like it's obvious, but it's sort of counterintuitive to look in the direction that they came from, not just where they're going to. Yeah, son of a gun, look at that. There's some other. There's some tracks, there's some, if you know what you're looking for, you can see some broken branches and see where they came from, which is the last set that I saw like that. It was like 17-inch tracks, and they had appeared behind a friend of mine and I uh, literally 10 minutes after we'd 
we'd gone to this one area. So we thought that's an excellent direction not to go. <laughs> well, We're going to go the other way. It, it tells you, it gives you a better picture of what may have been going on with the creature. What was it doing? You know, they're not right. just wandering around aimlessly. They're doing things. And if you don't know where they came from and where they're going, you have no idea what's going on. Are they circling back? Are they after, it, like with the Skookum Meadow thing, we'll go back to that a little bit because I like picking on that. Um, you know, we know we know Sasquatches don't like to be out in the open. In fact, if you want to get rid of one around coming around your house repeatedly, cut the brush back at least 50 feet because they don't like being out in the open. So Skookum Meadow and, and Crow, you know, he jumped on the name Skookum, you know, because to him that was Bigfoot. Well, Skookum in, in Chinook jargon can mean a number of things. It, it, a lot of times it's used to denote big, okay? So it was, maybe it was Big Meadow because it is a big meadow where Skookum Meadow is. Um, a road runs through it. So I kind of doubt an apex predator is going to lay down in the mud in an open area near a road where humans are. Just doesn't make any sense. And if they're hunting the herd of elk, they're going to be in the tree line skirting where the elk are. You know, picking and choosing their prey. Uh, the whole thing just didn't make any sense to me. It seems to me that the Bigfoot's problems could be solved if one member of their tribe were a good cop. Right. And they just had some, like, sandals made or something no one would be able to track them <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah they're, they're um I, I never trust the people with like weird um footprint impressions that just look like something they made in their like third grade kiln class you're and right. they have no other evidence. It's just like, I found this footprint, so I know he's there. There there was one. Yeah, that you, don't do it for me. Now that you mention that, there was one I saw. And it's funny, I, I look on Facebook for this stuff, you know, to see what's kind of going on. And I can't remember where this came from, but somebody, and he was putting this stuff out like it was legit. And he's got this cast on the back of his pickup. You know, the bed is folded down. And the track is the length of the width of the truck bed. And I'm thinking that's a big, big, big yeah. It's the, to me that says that's okay, why they call it Bigfoot. That's right? that's a huge red flag right there because <laughs> you know typically tracks go from adult tracks go anywhere from 13 inches or so up to about 17. I've seen them 18, possibly a little bit longer. I think you know looking back at the Mount St. Helens tracks we found in 1976. Uh, initially, we said they were 19 inches, but I think there was a little bit of uh, toe drag when they pulled the track out of the um, the pumice. That pumice at Mount St. Helens was pretty thick, and, and you sink in quite a bit. So I think there was a little bit of that when they pulled the track out that made the track appear to be a little bit longer, but not much. It was it was a decent size, you know, 18-inch set of tracks. Uh, and we saw hundreds of those going up the slope. So... You know, 18, I've seen 18, cast 18-inch tracks a couple of times. Uh, but typically, you know, for an adult, they, they seem to be around 14 to 16 inches that time frame or size frame, some up to 17. And then, of course, juveniles can be can be mistaken for human tracks because of the size. But these ones that are... But the, the pickup truck size. Yeah, three or four feet long, that's a little ridiculous. 
That's that's not. Oh, I did the I did the quick math on that. So we're talking a Bigfoot <laughs> that's twenty six or thirty feet tall. Yeah, right. <laughs> How would you not notice that? Yeah, an eighteen inch Sasquatch track puts them right around nine and a half feet tall, and and typically that's kind of the upper range for an adult. I mean, there are reports of them being larger. However, you know, you have to look and say, well. Yeah, they said it was bigger, but how do they know it was bigger? Unless it goes by a fixed object that was measured. I know how they do it. My uncle's from Texas. And he told me in Texas that they, you know, he, he would show a fish that he caught that was six inches. <laughs> Everything comes big in Texas. Yeah, and I said, well, six inches, it's not that much. He said, no, 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 in Texas, we measure between the eyes. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. Well, I, and I can give you an example, you know, of a fixed object. We talked about uh, the things that happened in Yakult back in, in 89 and 90. I got called by the family one night. I was in bed, and I told them, you know, they had seen they had seen the adult male a, a number of times. We found tracks of two juveniles, 12 and 9 inches long, in the mud. And I said, there was probably a female in the group, but nobody had seen that one yet. Well, it was probably a month or two after we initiated the investigation there that I get a call from the family, and they were just beside themselves. And this was about 11 o'clock at night, and they had this big bright light out um, near, it was out from the house near the shed they had. And this creature was standing there. And so this was right at the edge of this pasture. And it was standing there under this light looking at the house. And they were describing it to me in detail as they were watching it. So, uh, and it was the female. So I throw my clothes on and go driving out there. And sure enough, we found 16-inch tracks in the flower bed under the light. And then we could see eye shine from at least two individuals out in this field. And the lights we had weren't super bright, so all we were seeing is eye shine. But we saw eye shine of one of the creatures near... Um, there was part of a corral there, an old corral, and they had these eight-foot posts with a two-by-four that went across, and apparently that was like an entrance or something at one time to this corral. So we knew that the eyes were right about pretty close to the height of this these eight-foot posts, so we knew that one creature was about eight feet tall. And then the footprint length confirmed that. I got a question. Yeah. Families. I, I think, are the juveniles, are, are the little foots, mm-hmm. are they kind of a little more curious with people like like baby gorillas or baby chimps are? Whereas, like, you know, the, the foots don't like people. They're going to stay away. Yeah. And, and gorillas will tend to stay away from people. But the babies are just like, hey, look, someone to give me attention. And they go, like, want to be more playful. Well, they seem to be, from reports, seem to be pretty skittish, too. Um, you know, Tom and I, we've interviewed people that have seen juveniles, and the one I was thinking of, remember the one that was seen on a stump? Oh, yeah, 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 that was a good one. Then there was another case that was actually kind of comical. That was here in Northern California with a guy, uh, I think he was hunting, and he and he come on these two individuals, and, and they were apparently, they were siblings, and, and one of them smacked the other one in the head with a stick, apparently thought that was humorous. <laughs> Yeah, they're siblings. Right. Yeah. yeah, pretty obvious there, right? Yep. Um, but I mean, well, there's there's the Yowie, 
in Australia. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites where uh, this gal's a, um, we're not going to mention her name, but she's a uh, uh, psychologist or family therapist. And she was just out hiking alone and she saw a juvenile uh, sitting by a creek. And it turned and it looked at her. And remember that? She, she said it It looked like it pursed its lips to make a yes, sound. Yes. Uh, an inaudible sound. So probably either infrasound or ultrasound. And moments later, the, adult the parent came. showed. Yeah. There's also cases like with Troy that we had on. Um, Troy, you know, and these two buddies were fishing and they heard this god-awful screaming on the ridge above them and then this thing come racing down and just throws this absolute tantrum in 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 the midst of the three of them and um you know oftentimes the juveniles are used as sentries by the group you know to warn the rest of the group there's danger approaching so yeah they're they're not the fun-loving creatures we might think they are the juveniles yeah i um you know, going back to the guy that we talked to, and he saw it up in uh, northwestern Oregon, in a, in a forest up there, and it was just there was something. Even he was a kid, and this thing was looked like a baby chimp or gorilla was the best way he could understand it, sitting on a stump, mm-hmm. eating something, but he said, "I knew that it was aware of my presence." Yeah, it was a very, very interesting story. You know, I haven't, I haven't heard any that I can think of where, you know, the juveniles were curious or, um, you know, would would move towards a human. It's always uh, like that one. The most you might get is indifference. You know, knowing that you're being aware that the human is there, but not really, uh, or maybe just being on the verge of fleeing. Kind of sad. I'd kind of like to hear a story about someone like you know playing on land of the lost chaka yeah <laughs> yeah the, the one story with them the one smacking the other one in the head with a stick was pretty funny actually yeah my brothers will be laughing at that. <laughs> i'm sure I got that with many of them, so i know <laughs> I, I got brothers too we we understand that oh it's not um, it's not just boys i have five sisters and we had all the same kind of stuff in our family did you ever have a dart thrown in your head we had lawn darts. We tried to hit each other, but I think we were all smarter than that to get out of the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. My older brother wanted to play William Tell with the dartboard. In oh, my no. Head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. Well, Brian, what kind of questions do you, have, do you think we have for our audience here? I would love to hear some questions from the audience. Can I help answer some audience questions? We could, Tom. You want to want to throw some out? We can. We'll we'll re um, ask them when Forrest is on, also. But uh, we can. so we can ask like you know, get the professional answers and uh, the history schlubs answers. Sure, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> yeah, and um, so I'm going to throw out one of the questions, which. Uh, and by the way, we, we love all the questions. There are no bad questions. You know, if you have a question, rest assured, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people with the same question. And so starting off with that, the question is, 
are Bigfoot limited to just the deep, dark forests, or do they sometimes encroach into rural suburban areas? Brian, what do you think? Wow. Um, you know, I've heard legends and tales of them, like, appearing in villages and, like, in, like, the Korean, or, you know, but I've never heard of them encroaching on, like, cities or towns in, in North America, but I, I've heard stories of, of, like, Korean villages where uh, one will show up. You know, it's interesting. If you if you look at John Keel's book, uh, Jadu. Which I do. Jadu, I love John There's a couple of chapters in there where I think one of the Eddies actually did come near some of the villages that he was, you know, when he was going on the, his uh, route. Uh, and he eventually caught up to the, the Yeti and actually saw it and another individual, which is a pretty fascinating story. But here in North America, we do get stories from people, and, and there is a little bit of encroachment happening now. Uh, not so much cities or anything like that, but on these smaller communities, Carol's stories are a good example of that in Missouri, where the community is having a heck of a time, really, with these things. I mean, sort of a one of those things where the locals all know what's going on but they don't talk too much about it because they're afraid to um, but one of the things that would draw them in of course is food and we've talked about that where food humans are kind of messy we leave lots of stuff because we think nothing's going to bother what we have now it's pets pet food you know livestock food livestock themselves things like that even salt blocks uh, and, and i can think back to my own first encounter you know, our barn was situated near the wood line there. Uh, it was open on that side facing the tree lines, and there was all kinds of stuff in there to eat. It would have been a natural draw for anything coming around. So, you know, I would also think, uh, not to try to sound like the expert here, but logically I would think about towns or villages near logging communities. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, if you're taking their habitat away, where are they going to go? Like the deer in this area, you know, people don't think of, of, you know, Western New York, Canadian borders being deer territory, but, you know, there's times they have nowhere to go and they'll be wandering the streets of the city, like down the middle of Main Street, you'll see deer walking. You know, some of that... You take their habitat away, where they're going to go? Some of that is because there's so many more deer now than there were in the past. And and here's one, here's a byproduct of logging. When you log an area, or if it's burned over, like Tom, we saw in September up in your area, the areas that were burned over the previous year were full of leafy plants and trees, just covered with them. So what that does is it inadvertently creates a food supply, a big food supply, for the creatures like deer and other animals that eat plants. So what's going to happen is your um, predator population is going to exponentially increase also according to you know, it's prey population increasing. And and sometimes the deer will come down. Now, we see it here on the West Coast. It's a joke, you know, where the deer and elk will come down and hang right next to towns, small towns, during hunting season. They'll usually appear right the day before hunting season like they know when opening day is. <laughs> and they'll hang around the low areas. And then as soon as hunting season's over, they disappear. They're back up at the high country. Um you know, so, I mean, they, they learn. They're not stupid. They do learn over time. And I think these days, especially since people don't really, 
bother wildlife too much anymore, not like we used to, they're not afraid to come in those places. And plus, to be fair, yeah, exactly. There's certain days that the wind's blowing right. You you can smell Burger King like two miles away. Oh, there you go. See, so there's the draw for Sasquatch. That's a draw for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, it reminds me when, uh, you know, movie theaters used to, you know, they would have a ventilation system that would uh, vent the popcorn popping into the theater. Have you guys heard of that? And then, you know, during their mission, yeah, popcorn sales would explode. (laughs) Figuratively speaking and literally speaking. I'm a popcorn and a whopper. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a natural combination, right? It is for me. I don't know about the rest. That's buffalo. That and chicken wings. But yeah, they've, they've been seeing a lot more, you know, coming near, um, I would say, lower populated areas, smaller communities, towns. Uh, because there's things there for them you know it's it's much easier to go after something you know like pets or pet food than to go out and have to spend the day hunting you know and and laying in in wait to ambush something you know it's if you can do it i mean they're they're very opportunistic and we know they go through garbage you know so they're going to go after whatever they can get it's like polar bear migration in canada every year yeah there's those little villages that have to like you know evacuate oh yeah because ah, it's time for the polar bears to show up let's get out right right yeah so i mean other animal species are following these same behaviors so it's not out of uh, the ordinary at all really you know could you imagine if you had little villages where no it's not the polar bears coming but we've got 40 or 50 sasquatch it's time it's that time they're going to be coming in um. <laughs> well, and there are issues in places like Alaska because, you know, our friend Fred uh, told us about things going on up there, some of the native villages and, and the problems they're having. So these things do come in and create problems. We have individual people, you know, here in the lower 48 who've contacted us a number of times asking for help because these creatures have ramped up their behavior around their homes. You know, Carol is one example. But... Uh, you know, some of the methods oh. that we've employed do work. They get rid of them, but they come in and this behavior ramps up and it can be very dangerous. Yeah, Lee had a, that one that uh, you referred him to yep. here in Oregon. Right, yeah, that family contacted me and they were they were desperate looking for help because the creatures were there uh, and seemed to be focused on their small children. You know, yeah, and up in my territory, like, Allegheny State Park's not too far from me, and as I'm sure you guys know, there's monstrous amounts of sightings yes. in that national park, and apparently it's people always saying they're coming at our campsite. Yeah, absolutely. Because people, our behavior has changed over the last 40 years or so, and and they are responding to that change in our behavior. That's well, we were camping. That, that's interesting, Brian, that you mentioned that because we interviewed a retired law enforcement officer who would go camping there. And he'd also go camping up in Canada. And you remember that, uh, Will? And, and this thing came in. It was throwing rocks at him and mm-hmm. his dog. And the dog was freaking out. Um, 
So, yeah, I've often wondered about, you know, here's what I, just a personal question of mine. Well, you and I know where they are here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. We can drive to the exact spot and we will never leave that area empty handed ever. We do leave and that's a plus, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) that's always a plus. Yeah. So far, so good. Um, But I just wondered if the, you know, I look at areas uh, like in, you know, on the East Coast where they have reportings or down in the South. And if we can use the same kind of known behaviors, like the areas that they would inhabit, right. if that would be applicable, uh, like in the Allegheny. Is it, did I pronounce that correctly, Allegheny? You did. Okay. National Forest. I'm just a kind of a curious thought if if that would work, you know, if that if those same tactics would work I think they'd throughout be, the United States. I th- well, it, it's going to be similar there because the terrain and everything else is, and the climate is very similar there to what it is here. Um, you do have slightly different variations there. So uh, behaviorally, that might, that might change it some, but um, the things that we do here would probably be similar there. In other parts of the country, it depends on the terrain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in in uh, up in the northeast, upstate New York, you're going to get more, a lot more deciduous trees. Am I correct about that? Or yes, that I like. Especially in the fall, you're going to have leaves. It's going to be harder for these things to sneak around. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. And leaves sneaking in on your campsite. Anytime I'm driving around an area that's like heavily wooded, like going somewhere, I always point to my girlfriend and say, look, Bigfoot's. She always hits me, stop it. (laughs) Bigfoot's, stop it. Well, Will, what about uh, Lisa? Lisa and Norma. I mean, they're in areas. Norma's in Massachusetts. Lisa's in New York, upstate New York. Right. And so is Gail. And so is Gail Beatty. Okay, Yeah. And they have some incredible sightings. Very good stuff there, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think, now when you're talking about New York, I don't think you're going to find them on Wall Street. Maybe. I don't know. I I just don't think it's safe if you put Massachusetts and New York Bigfoots together because that's a Yankees-Sox rivalry. That's going to do it, yeah. That's That's... Over. There, there's another another whole consideration we have to think about. <laughs> yeah, the Yankee ones will win, just like they did yesterday. Um, anyway. <laughs> now, don't hold back, Brian. How do you feel about this? Exactly. I'm not going to hold back. And I want to tell people with the questions, don't hold back. There's no such thing as a dumb question unless you listen to my show. Then they're a dumb question. <laughs> but never be embarrassed to ask anything because, like, like, like William said, no matter what your question is, there are a lot of other people thinking that. When I asked him, and you're all going to laugh and think I'm being funny about the Bigfoot ding-dings, he pointed out to me, you know, there are people that study that. So, there's no bad... And we won't mention who those people are. <laughs> no. Please don't. It's, it's not an area that I would focus on. I mean, now typically, it's, it's a valid question. Typically, genitalia is not seen. But that's that's a commonality among other primates. Well, or don't see. Or don't see, right. 
I mean, uh, if your fixation is on that, maybe you need help. I don't know, but. <laughs> Rorschach test. What, what's that, Tom? It's a Rorschach test. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever take one again, that's the first thing I'm going to. What do you see? I see a Bigfoot ding ding. And, and that could be a whole nother topic of discussion, but we'll let that go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's when your your mental health provider says, I'll be right back, and comes back with this really nice jacket. I've got a jacket. I've got a jacket yes. room for you. <laughs> right. It reminds me, there was an episode of MASH where Colonel Potter said to uh, psychiatrists, I've seen hundreds of ink blots. They all look like horses. So, yeah, you see what you're but there's, you know, again, you know, we go back to questioning evidence. I, I think I encourage everybody to be skeptical. I, I think it's healthy. I think it makes for better answers to these great questions. And and I think we should be. I think most people out there are skeptical. And I don't mean skeptical from the point. But there's a difference. There's debunkers and there's skeptics. There's a fringe of people and that scoffers. are debunkers. The ones that just absolutely won't consider anything. Then there's the people who will believe anything, and they're both fringes. When you look at the, our population of our country, that's the fringes. And unfortunately, sometimes yeah, they're very vocal. That up. What's that? I'm glad you brought that up because I don't know if this is going to be on video for everybody, but you guys can see Houdini right behind me. He's a hero of mine. He's on my wall. And a lot of people assume because I'm such a Houdini fan, and we've done four episodes on Houdini on my show, you should all check out Transatlantic. But, you know, Houdini was, is now considered the patron saint of debunkers, but he wasn't. He was a skeptic. Mm -hmm. Big difference. He was searching for the truth, and when he found fraud and hoax, he exposed it. The people that follow him today and are like the Houdini worshippers are like, I'm going to debunk everything. That's really not what Houdini was doing. He was going after the people that he proved were fake and hoaxes, and he's like, I'm going to expose you publicly. But that's not what it's about. Yeah, be skeptical, but don't write everything off. I mean, without evidence, you know, I want evidence if you want me to believe something, but I'm not going to go in with the mindset that it's impossible because you can't prove or disprove anything with that mindset. You know, there's, there's, a, quote, you know, there's, a, there's a quote that Renee DeHinden had that it was one of my favorites. And it was basically that, um, you know, everybody has a right to their own opinion, but nobody has a right. Uh, how did that go? Um, nobody has a right to be wrong about the facts. Without the facts, you know, their opinion means nothing. So, well, well, you and I have run into people that, uh, you know, I try to be courteous and polite, but everything they see is Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you're like, I, you know, and you, you, you know, there's a natural explanation for it. And that is a problem in and of itself. I, okay. I encourage people to go out there and to expand their awareness, mm -hmm. you know, when they're new to the topic and say, okay, wow. Hey, look at this. Um, I think this could be Bigfoot. But eventually when you learn how to peel back all that, and, and Lee was a classic example of that. He said it in the end beginning everything was bigfoot right. and then he learned over time to how to eliminate and once you get to that point that's when you see the real evidence and you're like okay all other explanations 
don't match well, except this right. one. And and we did that in the field in September when I showed you guys. Now, there are things that I've seen for years that I recognize right away as evidence because of that experience. But I would still approach it and say, like when I showed you guys, okay, look, let's look at this. Let's find out what the result is. is. Let's say those the trees we found that were tore up pretty bad. Um, the first thing you, you would ask is, well, was this done by a mechanical device? You know, a brush hog or something like that. And you would look for uh, cut marks, you know, made by a blade of some kind. We didn't see that. How, what is the break like? Is it sharp or is it, you know, kind of torn up? Well, we found those the breaks were not cut. So what else could have done that? Well, what's up there that's available to do that? It was it was non-human uh, because of the types of breaks. Well, the one tree in particular was very interesting. It was broken in two. It was pushed over. It was broken in two places, and on the very top part of the tree that was torn off, all the limbs were pulled off it. Yes. Um, so a bear. And it was selective. It only chose only cedar trees. One species. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the brush hogs that I'm aware of are indiscriminate you're right everything that's in the way gets chopped to pieces yeah typically they're clearing the side of a road of brush and, and you'll see that for a distance where they're going through an area and we didn't find that so in it in different areas it was different kinds of trees in northern california it was the pine tree uh in southern washington it was doug fir and like we you said and, and it was only that species to investigate at that point oh i'm sorry oh go ahead brian um a true skeptic at that point would look at things like, okay, what was the weather like? Mm -hmm. Are these trees alive? Right. Dead? Is there a problem with, with mites or, or some kind or of disease? Um, disease or bugs mm -hmm. or something that's destroying right. trees? Right. look for those. And how old, was the, how old was the damage? Is it something yeah. that occurs over time? And, and that's, that's the kind of questions we ask. Bigfoot is the very last thing that should come to mind. You want to ferret out all the various possibilities before you come to that thought. And what Unless other evidence? Television yeah, right. You know, what's supporting evidence is there? And I think, you know, when we were out there in September, I think Dalton was, I think he found a couple of foot tracks right by the... He did, yeah. <clears throat> ...the snap tree. And, you know, remember, after you guys left, I drove uh, solo up on the opposite ridge line and I saw the same thing mm -hmm. I saw torn up cedar trees right next to it would be saplings that were dug fur not, not, not touched. touched yeah it's the same thing and the brush hogs don't do the that the very first time I found these trees like this and I've mentioned this many times my friend Jack and I we suspected there were two drainage systems uh, kind of southeast of Yakult in Washington and by talking to Buddy Fight, you know, the, the X-Hell's Angel guy who, you know, was poaching deer and shot a deer and then followed the, the drag marks and found the Sasquatch and decided to let the, let the Sasquatch have the deer. <laughs> so he knew about this area. He'd seen tracks and things in this area before. And we decided to go into the Washougal River watershed. And it's extremely difficult to get in there. So we ended up eventually having to wade the river up to our chests to get across into that area. So we got into the watershed, didn't see a lot. So we decided to go to this saddle that divided that and another drainage system because there were sightings on both sides along both drainage systems. And we theorized that 
the saddle was probably a crossing point from one drainage system to the other. So we hiked cross country up there and we're, I mean, probably miles from any roads through that timber up there and no trails, nothing like that. It was all going cross country. We got to about, I looked on the map, it was about the 2200 foot elevation mark and it was a closed canopy middle of July so we knew what you know in that area you know what the weather is going to be like from month to month typically and it was it had been nice for some time and we found this dug fir tree and it was probably you know 12 15 feet tall about three inches through the trunk and and i measured this with a tape measure eight feet one inches off the ground it was snapped 90 degrees over and it was freshly done and we're thinking how in god's name did that happen there were no claw marks from a bear. Bear isn't going to reach that high anyway, and certainly not going to snap it over 90 degrees. There was no markings, no damage of anything else. None of the other trees around were damaged. And, and like I said, it was on a slope. It was There was big timber around it protecting it from any kind of weather. There had been no weather. And we looked about 100 yards off to the northeast, and there was another one. And we ended up finding about 13 of these in a line about every 100 yards or so so i took pictures took measurements they all measured about the same height within an inch or two and i showed one of my my friends from the klamath reservation and he kind of chuckled and he says oh you finally found that and i said find what and he says well that's that's their that's the big guy's markings he says that's that that's the big one showing the other ones which direction we're going to the next feeding area and I said, oh. And he says, yeah, if you find one of those, it's probably territorial marking. The line you found, that's telling the rest of the group where to go. And he says, and if you find an area where there's a lot of human activity, sometimes they'll they'll do this around that area to kind of a, as a warning to their own kind that, hey, this is dangerous. There's humans here. Don't go there. I thought, oh, very interesting. But, you know, I'm looking at everything possible to see how this naturally could have occurred. And I couldn't find anything. You know, I would have asked him, really, what else haven't you told me? Oh, I'm sure there was lots. <laughs> what do you hold it back? Well, you know, we, we've had Tom Seward on, and Tom Tom's a great guy, and we're going to do a regular piece with him um, every month. But he's he's one of the few Indians who will actually talk about this because a lot of them... And he made a good point. He said, actually, when you look at the, the totems, the carvings and things in the Northwest, he says it, it shows clearly that that's, you know, the Sasquatch is their number one creature out there. So when, you know, everybody says, oh, it's an eagle, it's this or that. And he says, no, it's a Sasquatch. That was their number one thing out there. And, and he's very informative. You know, what, what, what's that, Brian? I, you know, I've heard people... Indigenous tribes say that they're sacred to them. Right. Yeah, it depends on the group. And how they, they view respect them. them as part of nature. Sure, exactly. Yeah, it's it's all part and, of nature to them. You know, and I look at the native communities out there, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds of them. And, you know, you're talking about a living encyclopedia of this topic, as well as everything else. But especially with this topic, we should have learned a long time ago to listen to him. Will, I think about Yakult, uh, how you had said that the Native Americans there would warn the settlers when they came in, don't go up there. And I just got a chuckle out of that. I'm like, 
you know, you'd think some of them would have said, hey, that's a good spot. Go up there well, that <laughs> and area, make your home. Well, there. you know, a, a lot of the a lot of native folks were were very friendly toward the settlers. There was there was wasn't all negative. So I think right. a lot of times they weren't doing that. And partly it was to respect the Sasquatch. You know, because things like when you hear about rock throwing, like you mentioned with the the campers, uh, rock throwing means they want you out of there. Other primates will do similar things. When they want you out of an area, they'll let you know about it. Hey, let me ask you this. This is a question in in my mind. We've, you know, I talked to a guy. Uh, I think he's well. I texted by email, and hopefully we'll get him on the show. He's from New Hampshire, but he was out camping. And he had an experience that a few people have had, and that is where Bigfoot will come up and either lay its hand on your tent or drag its hand across your tent. And he had it followed up with guttural growls Mm -hmm. and a roar that literally rattled his insides. And for some odd reason, that sort of bothered him. Um, (laughs) I can't imagine. Gave him him pause. (laughs) Um, It would have gave me wet underwear, but... (laughs) Right, exactly. <laughs> or lumpy underwear. <laughs> or lumpy. <laughs> yeah. What, what, um, any idea why they do that? What's, could that be the equivalent of smacking the I side of I was just thinking that, yeah. Cap? Because when they approach humans, they want to know how many are there and, and their posture. So when they smack the side of a house, they're trying to get a reaction. They want to see how many people are there. Because it's a numbers game with these things. Same with the tent. They don't know how many people are in there. Is it, is it, a, you know, they're trying to assess the threat levels, what they're doing. <laughs> do they, do they, do they scrap, scrape the side of the tent and suddenly a 50 cal takes up, <laughs> well, punches holes through no, the no, fabric? No, think about this from, say, the 1950s or 60s. You get a similar situation. What comes out of the tent? A gun blasting. And, and, right. and I know people that would have done that. So, oh sure, yeah. If if there'd been any kind of experiences with these things, and humans in a situation like that, they're going to want to find out. So you might come up and, and gently test the waters a bit. Well, we had uh, that one of our guys that was on the show a couple of years ago, and they had run across a very secluded campsite that had been hastily abandoned because they left very valuable equipment in the campsite. But what was notable was lots and lots and lots of empty shell casings from, uh, you know, from a 223. I'll give you a good example, a story. And it comes from Teddy Roosevelt's 1892 book, Wilderness Hunter, the Bauman story. Uh, When they first realized there was a creature there, they were in their lean-to and... In the middle of the night, uh, they woke up. This creature was there at the entrance. And what's the first thing they did? They started shooting. So they probably that was probably a common practice with people, you know, for Lord knows how long. Well, it's, it's, it's and it's the times. It's the times. Because sure. if somebody's at your tent or the entrance to your lean-to or whatever it is, and they haven't announced themselves as a friend you know that they're not right so even today since we have been shooting a lot of things out there 
uh, our behaviors changed, you know, they're still going to approach very carefully to see what the threat level is. Is there anyone among us here who doesn't believe that if Teddy Roosevelt did run across the Sasquatch, he would have fought it? Well, Teddy Roosevelt might have, but he never ran under one. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie would have fought it. I'd, I'd have pooped myself. <laughs> Some people would have passed out. Eddie would have been like, let's go. Uh, Who was sworn in as president in Buffalo. Thing. <laughs> well, fellas, we're getting pretty close to being out of time. Any, any final thoughts before we wrap this piece up? I was hoping we'd get Forrest on while you were still with us, Brian, but we'll have to do that another time, I guess. She must be still out chasing the horses. I will come on anytime because my final thoughts are I am thrilled to be asked to be on. I am such a fan of the show, as you know. And, you know, I make a lot of jokes. I have a lot of fun with history. I like to keep things light and fun and entertaining. But at the same time, it's such a fascinating topic. And it's just, it's really a thrill for me to be here with, with the two of you because I love talking to experts and people who really know topics and it's just it's a thrill so thank you very much and both of you are welcome on my show anytime you awesome just let us know buddy and and you're always welcome here too and we'll, we want to have you back with um uh, with Forrest because she is a qualified anthropologist and she provides some really really good insights and especially the things we discussed today um she would have had some great input i would love that and uh we'll do it yeah let's make it a regular I will come on all the time. When, when you get the weird questions for your Q&A sections, save them for when I come on. Okay, we'll do that. <laughs> all righty, well, we'll, we'll stop for here, and uh, we'll pick this up. In Bigfoot History, near Cincinnati, Ohio, 1963. Mrs. Wallace Wright, Cincinnati, wrote Patterson that before their marriage, she and her husband were parking on a small road next to a wooded area when they heard a noise outside the car and saw something dark and unbelievably tall that made a low, deep noise. It looked from a distance like a huge tree walking. She said her husband took several men back to the spot and they all saw it. Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning, and they are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one is a Bigfoot encounter in California from the Yuba Feather River area between Laporte and Quincy, California. Story number two, a night in the Sierras. Number three, Butte County, Oroville, California. Number four, Wood County, Wisconsin. And number five, Strange Story, Clark County, Washington. Story number one. California's Yuba Feather River between Laporte and Quincy, California. I had a very up-close encounter in June 1988 on the North Fork of California's Great Feather River, between Laporte and Quincy, in a very isolated area. There is next to no traffic in this area. 
On this occasion it was me and my two dogs by ourselves, and it was a very unnerving experience. I had hiked into this spot, on the North Fork of the Yuba and Feather Rivers, a place called Middle Fork. I found a spot near a tree line so I could tie my food up in a tree to keep the wildlife out of it. I made camp and cooked a few trout that I had caught earlier. The campfire was still burning lightly as I was getting a little tired, so I decided to turn in. It was about 9 p.m. and the fire was now just about out, just smoldering a little, so I didn't put any water on it. I just climbed into my tent and laid down on top of my bedroll. I let my dogs run around because they always stay close to camp, if not in the tent with me, and I started to doze off to the crickets chirping when suddenly I woke up and it was as if I had one of those dreams where you're falling. I could tell there was something very wrong. It was dead quiet. No crickets. Nothing and my dogs came running into my tent, shaking. These dogs were very aggressive, usually. Not mean dogs, but would bark at anything that came around. One of them was a 95-pound pit bull. I was scared shitless, so I grabbed my rifle and pistol, along with a flashlight, and stepped outside the tent. I couldn't see anything, but I had that sensation of being watched. I grabbed some more firewood and threw it on the embers left from the dinner fire. Then I heard some very heavy footsteps right behind me in the trees. There was also a very strange odor, almost like a cross between a skunk and something dead. This thing circled my campsite all night long. Well, at first light, I packed up and started out and this thing followed me almost the entire day. I could hear it, smell it, and even saw it through the woods about 75 yards away from me, taking an almost parallel trail to me as if to make sure that I left its territory. I never shot at it with my rifle, as I don't believe in killing things for sport. I've never gone back to that place, but I would love to go on an expedition back there with some other people. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. A Night in the Sierras. It was June 1988, and I'd been camping for three days in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains. I was in my sleeping bag and listening to my shortwave radio at a loud volume. It was almost 9 p.m., and there'd just been an announcement for the Lone Ranger on radio station KNX. Only a few minutes before, a party of three went by on the trail, and I exchanged a few words with them about the local fishing. It was only moments later when a scream rang out that could turn your hair white. It was no further than 100 feet away from me, but out of my line of sight due to a nearby Ranger snow survey cabin. I've never to this day heard anything even remotely like that sound, not even in the recorded sounds that Peter Gutierrez was kind enough to send to me. Despite the immediate trembling fear I felt, I got up and grabbed my six-volt flashlight and put the light to the ground ahead of me. I walked over to the trail in the direction of the sound. 
The size of what I saw running off toward the river almost makes me wish I'd never gone to look. I remember shaking, standing there, hearing it thrash through the small lodgepole pines and brush down by the creek. The only way I have of estimating its size is by the administrative pasture corral that was between me and it. Even though I never saw it face to face, the split-second glimpse I got turned me into no better than a frightened three-year-old who'd just seen a monster. A conservative estimate of its size would be seven feet plus. There's no way this was a bear or a mountain lion. I've spent hundreds of nights in the mountains, and I know what I saw and heard, and I've been looking for it ever since, ever since I realized it was out there. I think it was there all the time, but I never put it all together until last year, 1991, when I met a man who told me about a sighting of a Sasquatch a few miles away from a favorite quail hunting spot of mine down in the transverse ranges. What got me to go investigate was that something had made me feel uneasy enough to pack up and leave early from a great hunting trip. At the time... I had no idea, but when I went out to the area of the man's sighting and heard banging and whistling in the chaparral, that's when I realized I'd heard that unique high-pitched whistle before when I was in Kern County. Since then, I read all I could on the subject, and this year I started to blow a slide whistle in an attempt to attract the creature so I could get a moving picture of it. I know this is a lot harder to do than it sounds, and I know it'd take cunning and nerve to get close enough to actually film it. Well, getting back to what I remember about that night, the prominent thing would be the smell. Initially, I noticed nothing, but over the next few hours, I kept smelling what I thought were rotting oranges. At times, it smelled very strong, like when you have a bag of fruit in your refrigerator and open it, and find them green and moldy? I'm sure it was around for a few hours. I don't know how to describe it, but you could feel it. I kept hearing things, first on one side, then on the other, down below me in the creeks. I just sat there with my single-mantle Coleman lantern on, listening. I kept trying to rationalize it away, but the experience was shocking, very hard to deal with in your mind. I decided to build a fire, and then I felt safe. At about 1 a.m., I found myself drifting off to sleep. My lantern was almost out of fuel, so I filled it and put it by my ground cloth and slept until first light. I remember thinking the birds were a good sign that it had moved on. When I woke, the lantern was still burning, which helped me realize it wasn't just a bad dream. All I could think about was getting as far away from there as I could as fast as possible. But I spent a half an hour looking for tracks. But all I could find were some splashed areas near the creek and some small plants that had been pulled up and put down on a stump that weren't there the day before. All I can say about a description is that it weighs a lot more than I do and it appeared black although I never put my light directly on it. It was gone from view in under ten seconds. In retrospect, I realize I should have stayed around the next day and 
looked for physical evidence, but the only thing I could think of was getting out of there. That evening, the people, they were on horseback, by the way, who had gone by just prior to the scream the night before, came by going the other way. I asked them if they'd heard the thing and what they thought it was. These people worked cows in the area for years. After a short discussion about the sound I'd heard and the speculation on whether it could have been a fisher, a weasel-like animal with dark fur, the older man in the group suggested that it must have been a Bigfoot. I let him bring up the subject. When I got back to town, I went to the Forest Service station office, and a man with a backpack was filing a report of how half of his food vanished from a tree in the middle of the night. He said his food was seven feet off the ground or higher. He was about six feet tall. He tied two bags of food to one side of a bear rope with a parachute cord and counterbalanced the other side with a piece of wood of equal weight. He put a 30-gallon plastic trash bag over the food about 1 a.m. that night, the night after my adventure, because it had started to rain. When he got up, the plastic bag had been stretched apart, and one bag of food was gone. Nothing was ripped, chewed, shredded, or torn. The other half was still in the tree. I've yet to meet a bear that exhibited such traits. I mentioned the word Sasquatch, and all four Forest Service employees that were in the room went silent and looked around at each other. One man said, oh, it must have been a marmot, a burrowing rodent. Since this time, I talked to a man who has lived in the area for almost 60 years. He told me that he and his 80-year-old mother had seen a nine-foot-tall red Bigfoot in the area two years earlier. He described the tracks perfectly. He said he never talked about it with anybody because no one would believe him. In the same area, in 1986, two scientists doing wildlife studies reported hearing loud screams that they couldn't identify. This is the end of story number two, A Night in the Sierras. Story number three, Butte County, Oroville, California, 1969. Outtake from Weird California by Mike Moran, Joe Osterl, Mike Mercenelli, and Mark Sergan. Under the chapter, Bizarre Beasts. The Big Hairy Man of Cherokee Road. Charles Jackson and his son, Kevin, got the shock of their lives on the afternoon of July 12, 1969. They were at their home on Cherokee Road in Oroville, well south or east of Bluff Creek, but not very far from the Plumas National Forest. Father and son were working peacefully in their backyard, burning rabbit entrails, when a huge ape-like creature loped out of the woods and stopped to stare at them. The beast was seven to eight feet tall, had large breasts, and was covered with three-inch-long gray hair except on its hands and face. The Jacksons, only fifteen feet away at the time, said that after it spotted them, it walked up to the outhouse, looked around, and suddenly ran back into the woods. 
Another Cherokee Road resident had a run-in with the ape-man around the same time as the Jackson's incident. For weeks, Homer Stickley's farm had been haunted by something that screamed in the woods at night and stole apples from his trees. Then, one moonlit night, Stickley saw the culprit, a tall, hirsute, two-legged creature that walked through a nearby meadow, pausing to stand by a stump. By September, at least a dozen people had reported giant ape-like things running around Oroville, but the Cherokee Road sightings remained the most documented and credible of the lot. Six years later, people were still seeing the beasts and finding their huge footprints in the area, but the creatures remained at large. By then, Oroville had established itself as another home of North America's most famous land monster, Bigfoot. That's the end of story number three. Story number four. Wood County, Wisconsin, 1985. My sister Natalie and I decided to take the four-wheeler out after dark against my father's words. We followed the trail from our property into the McMillan Marsh. There, we were able to run along a dike system between water reservoirs. It was midwinter, and my sister, Nats, was driving the four-wheeler, and I was riding shotgun behind her along the dike. It was lightly snowing. Dark grew in fast, and we were suddenly surrounded by darkness and snow, with two headlights to show the way. Suddenly... A large seven- to eight-foot creature walked up onto the dike in front of us about fifty yards away. It stopped, turned, and looked right at us. We both noticed how the wind blew the long, light brown hair about a foot long on its side apart, and it was white underneath as the hair parted from the wind. Our four-wheeler lights were not high enough to see the face, but it had a large muscular chest and arms and walked like a man. The chest was a little more hairless so that you could see rippling muscles underneath the dark hair. It had very long arms and, well, it did not walk like a human. It sauntered along totally unafraid of us. It swaggered with long arms swinging at its side and then it went off the dike and into the wilderness. We were shocked and horrified. We sat in shock and then throttled over where its location was. There were very large footprints in the soft snow. We hurried home and never told a soul until years later. We compared what we saw, and our stories were exact. We will never forget that night. It was not a wolf, a bear, or anything human. I stand by that with my soul. If it were just me, I would have blown it off as a figment, but Natalie has every detail to the exact of my own. Miriam, Wednesday, February 29th, 2012. That's the end of story number four. Story number five. A strange story in Clark County, Washington, August 2006. My brother-in-law and I were headed east on Lucia Falls Road, northeast, 
when we saw something on our left, sort of like it might have been a shooting star. It was still light outside, but barely. We thought it might have been a light airplane crashing. He was a medic. So we pulled over to the side of the road and got out of the truck and listened, but heard nothing. No cries for help. No sounds of metal burning. Silence. This area is due south of the city of Yakult and east of Louisville, Washington. But only a stone's throw away from Molten Falls State Park proper. We had been over on Yakult Mountain Road earlier and had come down this way via Northeast Kelly Road where it intersects with Lucia Falls Road. Thinking we should help if it was a plane down, we worked our way through the brush and trees to where the railroad tracks parallel Lucia Falls Road, and I told him that one of us better run back and get a flashlight in case it was a down plane and somebody was hurt. He yelled he was going on ahead to see if he could find the source of the flash of light and look for survivors. At this point, I stopped and turned around real quick to race back to the truck. I have a high-powered spotlight that was portable. In the back of my mind, I was hoping that the batteries were still good. When I turned to make my way back to the truck, I could swear I saw a big man higher up on the road near the truck, just standing there. But I caught my foot, looking down for a minute to get a better grasp on where I was stepping, and when I looked up again, he wasn't there. I called out to him, but got no reply. Limping a little, I finally got back to the truck. The batteries were working fine, and it was almost completely dark by this time. I grabbed my wife's cell phone off the seat, tucked it into my pocket, shouldered a loop of a rope just in case, and grabbed the lantern. I don't remember seeing another car on the road anywhere, but I remembered wondering where this man had come from that I had seen on my way up from below the apron of the road on my way up to the truck. He was nowhere in sight. I turned and hurried on to catch my brother-in-law and wondered, too, where he was because, by now, I was barely finding my way, and it was getting darker. I called out to him, but no answer. I moved on slowly toward where I thought I had left him at the railroad tracks and looked both ways on the track, but didn't see anything or my brother-in-law. I called out again and listened intently. There was no sound of anything, no wind, not even crickets. So I cupped my hands around my mouth and called out my brother-in-law's name in both directions of the railroad tracks, but I heard nothing, saw nothing, and began to wonder if that man figure upon the road was him a few minutes ago, but I couldn't figure out how he would have gotten there from where I left him. I picked up a rock and placed it in a strategic spot on the rail of the tracks to mark where I should head for the road and began walking east on the railroad tracks, aiming my lantern to the left and right of me, looking for him. Now I'm thinking something happened to him because he wasn't answering. Darkness fell quickly as I pressed on, uncertain I was going in the right direction of the flash that we thought we saw. I don't know how far I walked on those tracks, but my ankle was beginning to hurt, so I stopped to loosen the strings on my shoe and call out for John again. Still, no answer. And now I'm growing concerned. 
Should I go back and wait at the truck or press on? I listened but heard nothing but the sound of my own breathing. I checked my watch, and it was already after eight in the evening. I called out for John again, then turned to head back to the truck to phone home when I remembered I had my wife's cell phone in my pocket. The lantern scanned the tracks and train left and right of the tracks as I came back upon the marker rock I had placed on the rails. No sign of John, but maybe he went the other direction. I thought, so I left the marker rock on the road and walked the tracks in the other direction for about fifteen minutes, calling out for him all the while. About the only thing I noticed was the quiet. Where was my damn brother-in-law? It's roughly nine o'clock at night now, and no sign of John, but I didn't want to leave him behind. I sat down and pulled out the cell phone and dialed home. I tried to explain where I was and what had happened, but I couldn't explain where John had wandered off to, and I told the gals that I wasn't leaving here without him. Just as I was about to hang up, I heard footsteps coming and the disturbance of gravel on the railroad ties. I flashed the lantern around and down the tracks where I heard the footsteps and thought I saw John coming. John! I yelled out several times. Then I told the girls he was coming and hung up the phone. John looked a mess. Hey, where have you been, buddy? I asked. He reached out and put his big arms around my neck and said he was glad to see me. Well, I didn't know you went in this direction. Bud, where you been? What happened to you? He just hung on to me and said, Can we get me back to the truck right now? I asked, Are you hurt? No, John replied, Just scared shitless. What happened? You've been gone over an hour. We started walking back towards where I had the marker rock on the rails. John sort of leaning on me. Oh, man, you're not going to believe this. Believe what? I asked. What the hell's been going on with you, bud? I saw something, he said. Something huge. Yeah? What, is there a plane crash? I asked. I gotta sit down, he groaned. My heart's coming out of my chest, and man, I didn't see any plane. We walked with arms around each other's shoulders till we got back to my marker on the, on the rail and sat down in the gravel and turned off the lantern. John sat there in the dark for a few minutes with his head down between his knees, trying to collect himself. He was visibly shaken. He told me there was something out there. He said, something man-shaped, very tall, but looked like the thing had hair on it. Then I lost enough light to tell much other than it stood off to the side of the tracks in a hulking manner, me facing it and it facing me for a long time. I heard it breathing. I swear, I heard the thing breathing, and I froze. Man, I just froze stiff. My mind shut down, and I couldn't think what to do. I, I thought I was seeing things, he continued. It was something nightmares are made out of, and I don't recall I ever saw anything or a man that big before, and I never want to see anything like that again. I started to back up and run, but I couldn't see well. Kept tripping on the rails, cross ties and such, and falling down. I, I think I'm all skinned up. Let's get home. 
Back home, he recounted the same story to the girls. He was all cut up on the knees, skinned up like and bleeding with one bad place on the side of his right rib where he said he fell on something, maybe a railroad railing or one of the ties. My brother-in-law is a big man, tall, and he describes this thing he saw as huge and hairy. Then I started wondering about the dark figure I saw upon the road that I called out to when I went back for the flashlights. My son and I went back to the area the next morning and walked two miles in either direction, but found nothing. No sign of any plane down, no fire, no nothing. From John's description, we thought maybe he had a meeting with a Sasquatch, but we weren't sure. We never did know what the flash of light was. Whatever it was scared him, and he's a seasoned hunter, son of a slew of seasoned hunters, and he don't drink. So I don't know what he saw. I didn't see or hear anything other than the figure on the road, but I believe my brother-in-law did, and he believes it must have been a Sasquatch. My name is Marshall. I've lived in this area all my life, and so was my wife. This was a first. August 2006 That ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. These eight stories are a collection being brought to you by William Jevening and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story 1 Sasquatch Story Sonoma County, California Sonoma County, California Just a story Terrifying screams heard No sighting July 1980 Well, I have collected enough information from various Bigfoot sites about screams to conclude that I heard a Sasquatch on a bicycle touring trip from Portland, Oregon to Santa Barbara, California in the summer of 1980 my girlfriend and I arrived at Fort Ross Historical Park, north of Jenner, California, in Sonoma County on an evening in mid-July. We decided to camp there at Fort Ross, as it was marked as a campsite on our map, but it had no campsites. There was no one at the main house, nor around the fort, old Russian fur trading fort, or on any part of the grounds. We rode to a campground further south, but it was too expensive we decided to ride back to Fort Ross. We camped to the left of the upper parking lot under some Monterey pines next to a picnic bench. We ate dinner and went to bed at around 9 p.m. At approximately 1 a.m., a scream 20 feet to the left of the tent, our heads were facing the ocean, a blood-curdling scream of various sounds in succession that lasted at least nine seconds. It frightened me to my bone marrow. I froze in fear, knowing that whatever made the sound was huge. It was so close, I could hear the tremor in its throat. Since I'm a musician, I realize how much force it takes to make a sound that loud. I've also been camping all my life, and have heard various animals, but this was different. I have been told it was a bear or a mountain lion, but I don't think so. Anyway, my girlfriend said in a whisper, what the frick was that? I started to reach for a flashlight, and her hand grabbed my wrist with a vice-like pressure so I didn't move. We remained frozen, listening to every little noise for an hour. Incidentally, 
there were sheep running free everywhere, going, Bah! Bah! And they didn't stop making noise when the scream occurred. Finally, my girlfriend fell asleep, and I remained on guard with my hands hovering around the tent pole to use as a weapon, thinking that at any moment it would stick its fanged head into our tent. At around 2.30 a.m., I guess, I heard another scream down by the fort in the lower parking area. I figured it wasn't coming back, so I fell asleep. It didn't occur to me the next morning that it was a Sasquatch, so I didn't look for footprints, nor did I hear it walking the night before. This is the end of story one. Story number two. A story from Tehama County, California. Summer, 1977, 12 o'clock a.m. No sighting, just an odd occurrence. Nearest town, Chester, Highway 36 at Lost Creek Road. Willow Springs Campground in the Mount Lassen National Forest. Directions, take Highway 36 out of Red Bluff, then Wilson Lake Road to First Right. The road number is 29 North 18. It leads right into Willow Springs Campground. Lassen National Forest at 530-595-4444. My grandpa, my uncle, and I had been working in the area picking up sugar pine and digger pine cones for about three days or so, and had planned on being there for around a week. We were camped in a lower campsite in this campground, just off the main cinder road coming by the camping area. I remember the camp was right next to a creek, and each night we would hear the deer coming down to the creek to water and would occasionally shine our flashlights and see them drinking. One particular night we were sitting around relaxing, and I commented that it was strange that we didn't hear any deer in the creek. In fact, I don't recall even hearing any crickets or any of the usual nighttime noises. There was a group of people camped above us about 100 yards or so up the hill, and they hadn't been there camping as long as we had. The three of us could hear the people in the camp talking and such. Then it was quiet. Suddenly, someone in the upper camp shouted, Hey! Then some loud talking, and then this growl, scream noise. It was very loud and sounded as if it came from a fairly large animal. My uncle and I looked at each other, asking each other what the heck that noise was. We looked at my grandpa, who was smiling and chuckling, which I found to be very odd unless it was to cover up being frightened himself. My grandpa was a retired logger from Oregon. My uncle had also spent considerable time in the woods, working as well as hunting most of his life. I had spent a lot of time in the woods, also hunting and working for my uncle, but had never heard a sound like that, nor had the rest of us. My grandpa said, he thought it was probably a bobcat or cougar, but my uncle and I had never heard any animal make that kind of sound, not to mention the fact that those animals will most likely stay away from a loud camp and may venture closer when it is dark and quiet. Anyway, while we were wondering what the first noise was, there began a lot of hollering and another loud growl scream from the upper camp. Vehicle doors slamming, and then the vehicle took off down the road, tires throwing cinders. They were out of there but fast. We, my uncle and I, were shaken up, but too proud to admit it to my grandpa. We didn't hear anything else from the upper camp. Nothing. I don't know if they left anything up there, 
but, or how they were camped or anything. I do know that they didn't come back. We went to bed as it was getting late, and I was so afraid to make any sound, fearful that it would hear me breathing and come into camp to investigate. We left a couple of days later, but I don't recall hearing a deer in the creek in the evenings after that night. All of the information given here is to the best of my recollection. As for the terrain, it was heavily wooded pine forest, quite a bit of brush around the creek area. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. Weaverville, Trinity County, California. A young grocery clerk in Weaverville, Trinity County, took me to a point at which he came upon a light-colored Sasquatch during the winter of 1994. It was not far from Big Bar Ranger Station, where he and his girlfriend used to park and neck after work. Engaged in some heavy petting, they were interrupted by the rocking motion of his Chevy Camaro. They looked around, thinking it was one of their friends or other kids screwing around with them, but the windows were pretty fogged up. There was little visibility. Determined to confront the intruder, the young fellow bounced out of the Camaro, screaming, Knock it off! in a most assertive tone, only to find himself face to face in the pitch dark with a hulking figure he described as a bit taller than he was. Stunned, the kid backed up into the open car door, unable to move. He said the Bigfoot, with his left fist, wailed on the roof of his Camaro, beating it at least three times, but barely denting it. I heard it breathing. Man, I'm telling you, it was alive. Scary, blankety-blank. I heard it breathe. The informant called to his girlfriend inside the car, in what she later described as three octaves higher than his usual voice, telling her to lay on the horn. Upon hearing the sound of the horn, the Sasquatch sidestepped, backing away from the car, and stared at the kid. I couldn't see his eyes or facial features, but it was clear he was facing me and looking at me. Even as dark as it was, he was only lit up by the car door light. The terrified kid said he got in the car, locked the doors, started the engine, and did a quick U-turn on Big Bar Dump Road. Amazingly, he said the Sasquatch followed them up the road where it turns onto Corral Bottom Road, keeping pace with the car for several hundred feet before trailing off where they could no longer see it. I spoke with the two informants at J.C. Cafe in Junction City for more than two hours. Their account never wavered, and they still showed great fear in recalling the event. The female witness never actually saw the creature, but said she heard its raspy breathing. It was evidently too dark to get much of a description other than what he could see of the creature, illuminated by the Camaro door's light. He knew right away what he was looking at, but in the shock of the moment, he was able to distinguish little. Responding to my question, did you see a reflection from its eyes in the car light? He replied, there was no color or light emitted from its eyes. There was no smell from the creature, and he could not tell if it was male or female, only that it was this humongous, dark, towering image that he could hear breathing quite heavily and with angry intensity. He said it kept pace with his Camaro to about 20 miles an hour. Then it trailed off, but he wasn't sure of his speed. His girlfriend 
amazed by it all, only saw a blurred image through the foggy windows. A happy ending to this story, though. The Amherst couple are now married and expecting twins. This is the ending of story number three. Story number four. Late at Night, Canada. In June 1996, Chief Editor of Animal Watch, Alex Michael, wrote of her encounter with Sasquatch in Volume Number 1, Issue Number 10. I thought to copy the article here as I found it one of the more chilling accounts I have read, and educational as well. Late at Night, by Alex Michael. A True Story. My family has always been notorious for doing things at odd hours, and as you may well know, the strangest things always happen late at night. It was an unusually warm autumn some years ago, and at sixteen years of age I had just finished a summer job as an arts and crafts camp counselor. The only thing left to do was pick up a rather large trunk filled with my belongings. Unable to fit such a large trunk inside the VW Beetle, I had purchased just a few weeks before, my mother was volunteered to transport it from the mountains back to the city in the larger of the family cars. Summer camp was a very wild place for me, with staff partying every night until the wee hours of the morning. My room was near the entrance of the staff residence where all these parties took place. By late July, sleep-deprived party wimps like myself were weeded out, so I built a single mattress-sized platform in the woods and then covered it with polyplastic. Bow Valley Provincial Park, an undisturbed protected forest, was only a stone's throw away. It is there that my mother, a small dog named Willow, and myself were going to retrieve my trunk at three o'clock on a Monday morning. Why three in the morning? Well, I could say it was the heat, but it was mostly because my father had not yet been told that the car would be leaving town. There was also my adolescent fear that knowledge of the platform construction would somehow reflect itself in a summer paycheck I had not yet received. My mother had to be at work by 6.30, so we had less than an hour to complete this covert action. As we approached the highway turnoff, a sliver of the moon cast a glowing border around southwestern Alberta's Mount Yamnuska. Driving several miles along the gravel road, the camp looked deserted. Summer staff had cleared out several weeks before, and a handful of permanent staff were either taking days off in the city or asleep in cabins several miles from the summer campsite. Angling off on the side of the road, my mother left the headlights on, pointing into the trees. There was some discussion about taking the 20-pound dog named Willow for protection. However, Willow's track record for wandering off severely threatened a successful completion of the mission. Plus, very uncharacteristically, the dog named Willow now refused to get out of the car and was partially hidden under the driver's seat. Car headlights were of no value after the first few seconds of meandering through the forest. We had a flashlight but I was having difficulty remembering the exact location. The 15-minute walk turned into a 30-minute skin-scraping bushwhack, but finally we arrived at the isolated platform, even though the flashlight batteries were now dead. 
I assured my mother all that needed to be done was to take down the polyplastic rain cover and carry back a mattress and the trunk. It should only take two trips. She was noticeably silent as we began working in the darkness. My mother began untying strings, securing the poly to the ground, and I was kneeling on top of the four-foot-high platform, stretching up to reach some tangled binder twine knots tied to a tree. A pungent smell suddenly flooded the air. My eyes moved from the knots to the tall length of plastic. There, distorted through the semi-transparent poly, was a huge shadow only about seven feet away. With the four-foot platform and me kneeling on top, the creature was easily at eye level. A split second later, there was an incredibly loud screaming roar. Although I know of nothing to describe it, the sound was like a peacock scream, a bear growl, and a lion's roar, all somehow combined. I can't tell you if I screamed. I can't tell you much of anything, other than my eyes continued to peer through the plastic at this massive shadow. My five-foot-three-inch-tall mother had somehow leaped into the air and was now up on the platform beside me. Whatever it was finally turned and walked slowly away on its long behind feet. We continued watching as each heavy step could be heard contacting the ground. There were no visible ears, just a sparse mohawk-like fringe sprouting up from the tapering top of the creature's head. From behind... The upper body appeared massive. It continued to walk upright until disappearing into the trees. We stayed on top of the platform, motionless, for some time after. Then, finally, I started ripping down the plastic. I have no idea what my mother did during the next forty or fifty seconds, but my next memory was power-walking through the forest, balancing a single mattress on top of my head with one hand and carrying the handle of the trunk in the other. I assumed my mother was holding up the other end of the trunk. With Willow still hidden under the driver's seat, it was a very quiet drive home. Late at night, they say that your mind can play tricks on you, but I am so certain. Brown bears had been in the area that summer, but I have never seen a bear walk upright that smoothly for that long a time. Or could it have been a very large, long-furred man standing over seven feet in height? I say man because intuition tells me that the creature was a male. Could it have been a Sasquatch that night? I will never really know for sure, but you can bet that I will keep telling the story, as if it were. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Logan Lake... British Columbia, Canada. Nearest big city, Kamloop. The informants, a man and his wife, were not too far from me, camping in the summer of 2000, and during their stay they were experiencing some rather frightful events. The reason they contacted me was because they had come across my sighting, and because theirs happened so close they wanted to talk to me. They were camping for two weeks, and during this time... Their food was being taken, and even some clothes were missing. They thought maybe coyotes, or even bears. But one morning, after hearing something in the campsite during the night, they woke up to find everything tossed around the campsite. Even the guy's boat on a trailer was moved a few feet. One night in particular, 
Something hit the side window and broke it, and in the morning they found a large rock sitting there in the dirt. On another night they said it sounded like a few people were outside their camper mumbling. Jill said it was like someone had their mouth full of food. I pictured the Sasquatches eating all their food and trying to talk to each other. After that morning incident they cleaned up and had breakfast, when Jill had noticed bare footprints just off to the side of their camper, and they said it was obvious to them by the size of the prints that the visitor during the night had to be a Sasquatch, nothing else. They said the prints were around 18 inches long. The man put his size 12 foot inside the print, and there were still five or so inches more in length. They told me that a couple days later they were out in the boat fishing and actually saw this thing in their campsite while they were out in the boat. Apparently it was throwing their stuff around and making a mess of things. The couple described the Sasquatch as a reddish-brown with long arms and a funny-shaped head. They believed it to be a male because of its bulk, size, and height, which they say was about seven to eight feet tall. I asked if it could have been a bear, and they both replied, As God is our witness, what we saw was a Sasquatch. After describing the arms, legs, head, and all, there was nothing else it could have been. Personally, judging by their body language and the way they were trembling while talking to me, I believe them 100%, no doubt whatsoever. The older couple said they waited in the boat for a while until they were certain it was gone, and as fast as they could, they chucked everything in the camper and left the area, only packing up properly when they got to the town where they ended up staying that night. The couple were in their sixties, very clean and neat and polite. I can't see these two spinning a tail because it's been almost six years since that time, and they preferred not to be bothered by it. The sighting area is no more than a 40-minute car ride from me, and it's exciting because I've actually heard of another sighting in that area, but I didn't pay much attention to the person at the time, but now I'm going to try and track him down to hear what he has to say. I'm wondering if maybe there is a Sasquatch, and it could still be in that area. Tim Martindale, Merritt, British Columbia. This is the end of story number five. Story number six, Teapot Hill Hiking Trail in Cultus Lake Provincial Park. My name is Sunel Hodzik, and today, December 12, 2012, at approximately 3 p.m., I was hiking with my dog up Teapot Hill Hiking Trail near Cultus Lake Provincial Park in the Fraser River Valley. The nearest town would be toward Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. On my way down the trail, I was changing my music on my iPhone, not really paying attention to my surroundings, when I noticed that my dog, Lila, was barking like crazy. She was about five feet ahead of me and staring off into the distance, so I stopped and looked ahead when I noticed something in the bushes about fifty feet ahead of me. I was so scared that I froze and just kept staring at it. After about a ten-second stare-down, I switched my camera on and quickly took a picture. Meanwhile, my dog is still barking like crazy. I then picked up a rock and threw it in the direction of the thing, and then I quickly turned around and ran back up the hill. I waited about 
until I saw someone else coming down the hill, and I followed him closely behind all the way down. So I do believe I saw the Sasquatch or Bigfoot that day. If I could describe it, I would say he was about eight to nine feet tall, very hairy and big. His skin color was brownish. His face was something like a monkey or ape. I took it with a full zoom on my iPhone 4. He was about 50 yards away from me. He's in the middle rightish of the picture. Only thing I noticed really was how he was standing, looking at me. It had a long face, but bigger forehead with long hair starting from about the top of its head. Sonel Hodzik, Chilliwack, British Columbia. That is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Letter from El Paso County, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Summer, 1991. To whom it may concern. After reading some of your stories regarding Bigfoot, I thought I would add something I have kept rather a secret for quite some years. I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, back in the summer of 1991. I had been at the academy for only a few weeks and was finishing up basic training when it happened. Now, the academy itself sits on the foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Basically, I could step out of the cadet area and I would be standing in the mountains. There's plenty of brush, trees, and so on to conceal just about anyone of anything you want back there. Anyhow, one night, about 9 p.m., my roommate and I were laying in bed chatting about our upcoming campout in Jack's Valley, an area just beside the academy where we did a lot of field training, when we heard what sounded like a woman screaming her head off. It was absolutely horrific to hear. What was most interesting was that prior to the blood-curdling noise, we could hear the other cadets in their rooms talking and joking. The campus was basically shut down for the night, and everyone was getting ready for the next day. I remember the ambient noise being rather loud. Then this scream came. All of a sudden you could have heard a pin drop, it was so quiet. I turned and asked my roommate if he heard what I and everyone else had just heard. I know, what a dumb question. He looks at me and says, Oh yeah, that's the local Bigfoot. I couldn't believe it, but of course, I heard it. He then proceeds to tell me about a buddy of his who saw a big hairy human drinking at a local lake. When it saw his friend watching it, it stood up, turned away, and walked into the forest. Of course, the next week in Jack's Valley, for me, was a very nervous affair. I was more worried about getting up at night and walking to the latrine by myself than I was running the assault course. Well, I just thought I'd add my two cents worth. Please withhold printing my name from this email if you decide to post it. Thank you. That's the end of story number seven. Story number eight. Lake Christie, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. My story. I don't even know where to begin. To this day, even the thought of what I am about to tell you makes every hair on my body stand up and brings tears to my eyes. 
why the tears? I don't know, but they are genuine. I have never discussed this with anyone, and hadn't planned to, but after stumbling across your site, I think I've had a change of heart. I live in Ontario, Canada. It is probably for this reason that I have never said anything until now. To my knowledge, almost all Sasquatch sightings are along the west coast on the continent and along the Rocky Mountains. I don't know how many sightings have been recorded this far east, but I know what I saw and heard on a few separate occasions. I used to work at a scout camp in northeastern Ontario. It is in a very remote location, nearly an hour's drive from any civilization, and one of the only true scout camps in all of Canada. It is surrounded by lakes and large hills of dense forests on all sides, and there are a few cottages scattered here and there around the main lake and camp that it's stationed on. Lake Christie, if I remember correctly. Although I live far away from this place, I work there every summer from 1996 to 1999. My first experience happened in 1996. I was 16 years old. As a counselor, every two weeks we were moved around and put in charge of different scout and cub scout groups. I guess so everyone gets a chance to work with groups of all ages. On this particular rotation, I was working with one of the senior scout groups at the camp. As part of their last week there, they had to partake in what was called a solo night. This is where each camper is driven by one of the assistant camp directors to a remote location and left for the night with the bare necessities to survive, a sleeping bag, rations for one day, and two strike-anywhere matches. It was on this particular night that I will never forget the sounds that I heard. It was late at night in August, I'm not exactly certain of the time, and I was sleeping in my tent in the upper field, which is not exactly on the upper campgrounds, but up the dirt road quite a ways and into the bush another five minutes' walk. Altogether, probably a twenty-minute walk from the main campground. In the middle of my slumber, I was suddenly awakened by a loud, deep shrieking, squealing sound that I had never heard before. I sat up in my tent, alarmed and uncertain of what I had heard. I thought maybe it was one of my colleagues playing a trick on me and the other two counselors who were camped up there alone for the night, or one of the other two for that matter. This being a camp full of staff who are well known for their pranks, I wouldn't have put it past them. Then I heard the noise again. It was even louder. At first I thought it was a skunk being attacked by coyotes or something. I have heard that sound before and witnessed it. For those who don't know, skunks actually make a sort of shrieking, squealing sound when being mauled to death. I saw it firsthand, but that is another story altogether. Editor's Note all mustilidae, such as wolverines, weasels, badgers, civet cats, skunks, and otters, etc., emit a loud to groaning squeal or high-rolling shriek, often sounding like a woman in hopeless distress when caught by predators or in iron-set traps. The sound can be very loud and unnerving, even from a wounded rabbit. However, the sound was much deeper. 
Then, just as it had come, the sound stopped. I lay awake for the rest of the night, barely moving a muscle. When morning came, and the sun was bright enough, I slowly came out of my tent and walked to the main campground for breakfast. A few minutes later, the other two counselors came down to the main camp and gave me a mysterious glance. Then one of them approached and asked me, "'Was that you making all that racket last night? "'You scared poor Dave half to death.' "'I just looked at him and said, "'What racket?' with a stone-cold look. "'He gave me a knowing look and walked away. "'We never discussed it after that, "'and no one mentioned pulling a prank on me "'or the other two that night. "'Sooner or later everyone owned up to their pranks, "'but no one even mentioned this one at all.' It was not until months later that I realized what I may have heard. I was watching a documentary on TV about Bigfoot, and a crew hunting the evasive being had recorded what they thought were mating calls of the mysterious creature. When I heard the sounds of the recording come from the TV, the memories of that night came back to me. I quickly sat up, eyes glued to the screen, and the hairs on my neck stood up again. It sounded almost identical. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Again. My next encounter was two years later, 1998, in August, again. It was late August, and there were no more cubs for the remainder of the summer, so the designated cub field and its cabins were vacant. So, not having much to do and no kids to watch, I decided to sleep in the cub field with the rest of the staff who had no children to take care of. The cub field is exactly that. It is a large clearing in the middle of a dense forest, up yet another hill. It is probably 150 yards wide and probably 200 to 250 yards long, with a row of small cabins on either side. While I laid in bed in one of the cabins, I woke a little after 12 o'clock a.m., I don't know why, but I was just suddenly awake. In the distance, I heard what I thought was howling, but I wasn't exactly sure. It sounded kind of muffled, but I was used to that sort of thing. I looked over at one of the other counselors staying in my cabin that night, and he was fast asleep. Then, out of nowhere, I heard what I thought was someone running right by my cabin. The steps were heavy and quick. I shot out of bed, grabbing my flashlight, wondering who was running around at this hour, since everyone was supposed to be in bed hours ago. I swung the door of the cabin open and shone my flashlight in the field. I couldn't believe what I saw next. About forty feet away, diagonally from me, I saw a large, hairy creature walking across the field very swiftly. I stood there in shock wondering what my eyes were seeing. This thing was absolutely enormous. At first I thought it might be a bear, but then realized something. It was walking upright, on two legs. It was very tall, bulky, and had dark brown hair covering its entire body. Then, as if noticing my flashlight, it stopped, turned, and looked at me. I could see the yellow reflection of its eyes and its face. The face seemed to be almost half-human, half-ape-like, having little hair on its face, 
but the skin was almost the same color as its hair, a sort of light brownish color. It stood there, looking at me, and I at it, for what seemed like an eternity, but was probably more like a few seconds. I wanted to scream. I wanted to wake up the others, but I was frozen. I was caught up in the phenomenon that I was seeing and couldn't move. That's when I noticed the smell. It was such a rancid odor I had to plug my nose to save from puking. Then the creature turned and began to continue its swift movement across the field, and in a matter of seconds it was across the field, walked between two cabins and into the dense forest. It was when it walked between the two cabins that I realized how tall this being was. I am six foot tall, without standing on my tiptoes. I can reach approximately to the seven foot four inch mark. This thing, as it walked between the two cabins, was taller than where the top one of the doors is. The cabins are elevated off the ground. From standing on the ground, I cannot touch the top of one of the doors. I am a couple of inches shy of it. I checked the next day. I would estimate that this thing was probably around eight feet tall, or close to it. Again, I lay awake for the remainder of the night, my hatchet by my side. This was the scenario for many of the remaining nights of that summer before I went home. There were even sleepless nights afterwards while at home. I didn't think I was afraid of anything, until that night. I tried searching for tracks the next day, but to no avail. I couldn't find anything. The next day I asked one of the head counselors if there were any large animals in the general area, such as bears, and he said, no. Apparently, there were no bears for miles and miles. I never mentioned anything about what I saw that night. I didn't want anyone to think that I was crazy. I thought I would just wait and see if anyone else mentioned something before I said anything. No one did. My last encounter was the following and my final year, yet again in August. I don't know why I went back after all of the nightmares and sleepless nights from the previous summer. I guess I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This time... I had taken a rowboat out onto the lake with a lady friend whom I had met that summer. Yes, there are female staff at scout camps. The main beach for the camp is in a small inlet of the lake, almost like a sort of small bay, before it opens up. As I was taking her on our romantic moonlight row, as I was taking her out on our romantic moonlight row, I heard what I thought was somebody whistling at me. I stopped rowing. She didn't hear it, but I know I did. I looked around at the surrounding shoreline and didn't see anything. Next, I heard a splash. A little one, as if someone had thrown a rock into the water. I thought maybe another couple was somewhere along that shore. I grabbed my flashlight. She grabbed hers. We scanned the shore from the safety of our boat to see if we could spot them. We were scanning in different sections. Then I saw them. Those eyes. The yellow reflection. I focused in on them, and they had an eerie resemblance to the ones I had seen the year before. 
Do you see them? I heard her ask. Without looking away, I said, No. You? No, she replied. What is that? Referring to the eyes caught in my light. A deer? She asked. Yeah, probably, I said. But I knew better. Then the eyes were gone. We then agreed that there was probably another couple out there, and we didn't want to get busy in front of other people. So I turned the boat around, and we went back to the camp. I have kept these secrets with me for five-plus years now. This is one thing I can honestly say I haven't told a single soul until now. I will never forget what I've seen and heard. Although there was no physical contact, I have been extremely traumatized from what I've experienced. All this has been put in the back of my mind until now, probably because there was a show on this Discovery Channel about Sasquatch today. Like I said before, it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. This is the end of the eight stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.